Hey guys, and welcome to the Business As Usual podcast, episode 44. It's been a while since we've done an intro. Uh, <laughs> we usually just uh, jump straight into it, but we've got Brandon from Aussie Wealth Creation on today, so we thought we'd do one today. Yeah. How are you, Brandon? I'm going well. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. It's an honor to come on and talk about all things investing with you guys. It's good to finally kind of... Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's good to finally actually speak to you guys. You know, there's so much messaging and whatnot, but it's good to actually have a chat. Yeah. 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 It's an odd thing how the community just sort of builds online and you end up talking to people online all the time and it's kind of weird. You you never actually speak in person or on the phone. Yeah. Like... like what we were just saying, I do my podcast with Hamish. I've only actually seen him in person twice. <laughs> yeah. How crazy is that? We've done however many podcast episodes. So, yeah, it's crazy. Now, it's good that's to finally have a chat. Yeah, that's the same between yeah. me and Jason as well. We've seen each other yeah. once, I think. Once, yeah. Uh, no, twice, because remember that, like, early on oh, the podcast, yeah, twice, we, did that, twice, yeah. we did that episode with MJ. Yeah. And so, like, you arrived. I already had MJ on because <laughs> yeah. uh, he, he was in South Africa. So, it was, like, really difficult to get the times all lined yeah, up. Yeah. Oh, so, no. MJ was already on the line and Matt, like, comes in, quickly sets up. <laughs> we do the podcast and then afterward he had to quickly leave to go to work. Yeah. So, oh, wow. So we had like a whole two minutes off of the podcast to talk. <laughs> Jeez, that's, yeah. that's stressful. That's hard when you're playing catch up like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I thought I'd uh, start the podcast with a, a bit of a, a story that happened to me last night. Um because I guess we're in the personal finance space and we always love to talk about how you need to have an emergency fund. And I actually had to uh, use mine last night. Oh, no. Oh, okay. Um, so I, my girlfriend's in Perth for like a week or so. Um, right. And so like, I'm just sort of by myself and I decided just to go out and get some food so I didn't feel like cooking. And so I went out, got food, and then I was riding back home and like sort of fell to my pockets and realized I didn't have my keys with me. Oh, no. Um, and I was like, oh, my God. Um, and I live in an apartment building. So it's like it's usually if, you know, you live at ho- like in a house or something, you'd put a key under a pot plant or something. And But like you can't really do that in here because you've got to get a like swipe card thing to get yeah. into the elevator. Right. And so we've like never put a key under the mat or anything like that. And I was like, oh my God, like, what am I, <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> like, I'm totally locked out. And so I managed, there's like an old lady, she lives on like one of the levels in here and I saw her and I just like sort of mentioned, oh, I've locked myself out. And she's like, oh, I've got a master swipe so I can get you up to your level at least. And then you can figure out what to do from there. And I had to call a locksmith um, and then kind of use, I had my skateboard with me and a helmet. And so I propped open the top door, of the fire escape. And then like, there's a middle door of the fire escape, like on the ground floor that I had to prop open using my helmet <laughs> and, like, to get the locksmith Lucky up. Lucky both. Oh. <laughs> and then, yeah, he had to like pick the lock for me. They're expensive. So, yeah. Yeah, so 220 bucks later, oh, um, no. should have just got Uber Eats. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Moral of the story. This is when but, Uber yeah. Eats actually saves you money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, 
yeah, not a not a cheap night. But <laughs> I guess that's, it, that's that's why you have an emergency fund. Yeah, uh, it's so it's so frustrating those expenses that pop up where you're just like, oh, you know, the only re- I have to pay so much money, and the only reason I have to pay is because I've just stuffed up something. It's mm, yeah, it's like one of the I, most I've frustrating just, things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like you try to be so so careful with everything and all other times, and you just sort of blow weeks of effort. Yeah. Because yeah. you've done something dumb like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, try try not to lock yourself out of your, out of your apartment. <laughs> yeah. um, pretty good money-saving advice. <laughs> anyway, um, we'll get over it. Uh, I'm not leaving again. I'm just going to stay here. It's cheaper. <laughs> um, anyway, so did either of you sort of watch the UK election results yesterday? Yes, I did. Yeah. Bit of a landslide. <laughs> yeah. It was uh, a landslide, wasn't it? It's yeah. really not good for Labour. Uh, my my favourite part of the whole thing is, like, I had Sky News up uh, during work, just on one of my tabs, just so I could watch the results come in. And what they were doing was, in each uh, seat, they would kind of count up the votes, and once they were counted, they would go and get all the candidates up on, like, a stage and then read out the votes... And then the person who won would make a speech. And there, there's a party over there. I don't know if they're having a laugh or if they're actually serious. But they're called the Looney Party. <laughs> and they've all got li- these ridiculous names. And they would go up and wear in, like ridiculous hats. Oh, or, my gosh. Um, they always one, have them. Yeah. There was one guy called uh, Count Binface. And he was wearing a bin on his head. <laughs> what? Um, he ran against Boris Johnson. What? Uh, there, <laughs> there was a Lord Buckethead. Oh my gosh! So is is this legit? Like that sounds yeah, that were, sounds crazy. This they is were democracy legit candidates. For you. Yeah, and oh in some gosh. in some seats they were getting more votes than like the Greens. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Man. It was crazy. Yeah, I, I, I just completely opposite end of the spectrum from like the American electoral system could you imagine if count binhead got in somewhere and actually oh stayed God. in character yeah <laughs> like he he would i wouldn't hear and he'd go into the house of commons and like be sitting there with all these like fancy politicians he'd be wearing a bin on his head that's, that's funny <laughs> it was very odd yeah but yeah um i think all the seats have now been counted and it's uh big sort of landslide for for the Tories looks like they got 365 seats so yeah like well over what they needed yeah what were they um, predicting were they predicting anything close to that or so it kind of swung a little bit it's it's a very interesting electoral system there where they've got the seats and then so effectively the the person who wins in each seat then like gains a seat in the House of Commons and you have to gain a certain number of seats obviously to form government but what it means is that when if you took a poll of the whole of the UK you could get very skewed results from it because just the way like certain voters are laid out they may have a high concentration of say liberal democrat voters in a couple of seats and while they may only make up a very small amount of the of the 
like voter pool, they could win an outsized amount of seats. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. Right. Um, and so, yeah, there was a couple of polls coming out through the week. And I think the lowest I saw was they were predicting maybe a 20 seat majority. Um, oh. And then through the night after the exit poll and then uh, through throughout the night, it's just sort of got revised upwards and upwards and upwards. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think they've got some like 80 seats now. So it's really, it's really just how the trend is going at the moment. That big swing towards um, conservative parties across the yeah. across the world here. So yeah, mm. um, I true. think that the like we saw that over here as well. The um, with the um, Liberal Party getting in very strongly and labor just sort of having a bit of a disaster yeah but in the polling they were they weren't even showing up in the polling to to win at all so yeah 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 the polling at least in the uk was much better hmm. uh, it nobody kind of doubted that the tories were going to win at least a majority but the big sort of um question was how how big that majority was going to be because they now are going to rush Brexit through. Um, yep. And if you had defectors who voted against it, like they've had for the last year or so, um, that could just drag Brexit on for forever. But now it seems like it's just going to go through. And I think by the end of January, they'll be out. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What are the big... I don't really follow politics all that much, to be honest. Like, I, I don't... To be honest, I'm not particularly interested in politics. Um, do you guys yeah. focus on it quite quite a bit with this kind of the stuff that you keep track of and you're investing and that sort of stuff? Um, not so much with my investing. Um, I just I find it interesting. Right. So okay. I, I, I keep I keep on top of it. Um, yeah. I quite enjoy watching uh, some of the big debates in the House of Commons because they're they're always quite comical. Right. Um, <laughs> True. Um, yeah, I, I keep keep up to date with it, but it doesn't influence my investing all yeah. that much yeah yeah right. it's probably more for trading um like yeah, if true. you've got if you've got something priced in like for example in the aussie election here we had the mm. labor election being priced in and when it went the other way the market actually rallied i think right, what yeah. a percent or so so you can kind of trade yeah. around that um depending on how you think it's going to go right um, okay and big things like brexit uh, it's really, it's really only going to be for like currencies, I think, and like some of the some of the companies that are heavily tied up in the UK. Yeah. Because um, yeah. I remember when it it was in 2016 when it first popped up, and there was a massive, uh, the 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 pound just absolutely shot down against the dollar. Right. So there was there was a massive trade there to be had if you had a went against consensus that. Yeah there was going to be a a no vote to leave but yeah that's about it really i yeah i think longer term it's more of like a macro yeah macro approach but yeah i'm pretty much like jason it's just more for enjoyment especially yeah. the uh the u.s <laughs> the u.s oh politics. gosh <laughs> oh, the u.s yeah it's, it's just uh entertaining to watch yeah, yeah. um those debates yeah, the pound shot up about one percent uh i think on thursday for us or thursday night for us mm -hmm. when it sort of became clear the tories were going to take it out yeah yeah um oh sorry it um it weakened mm -hmm. um and so that, that's just basically now that brexit's effectively a sure thing yeah um we'll 
Well, yeah, the, the pound just weakened. It has come back a little bit, but so in terms of those sorts of things, if you want to trade like forex or something, then yeah, you're going to want, want to be pretty clued into that. Um, I was looking actually earlier this this week at an Economist, a series of articles the Economist did a couple of years ago actually on the Swiss franc, mm-hmm. and they actually I didn't notice they had a sort of semi gold standard in about 2011 um, when it when effectively in the fallout of the GFC there was a massive flight to the Swiss franc so there was heavy heavy demand for it and it was pushing the Swiss the value of the Swiss franc way way up right um, and so and that's really not good for the Swiss economy obviously and so the Swiss central bank went and decided effectively to peg it to the value of gold, but not to make it redeemable for gold, mm-hmm. like the classic gold standard. And so that then had, it stabilized it, and then they released it in, I think, 2014, and there was a crazy, like, 10% move on the currency. Yeah, wow. Like, wow. overnight, um, which, like... In forex markets, everyone's leveraged like up to their ears, so yeah, yeah, that would have caused some some headaches for some people, and some people would have had a really really good day. Yeah, imagine if you went to sleep short, and you were <laughs> leveraged like four hundred to one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, my God. <laughs> yeah, um, so it's crazy how much leverage you can get on on the forex markets without like, kind of proving anything. It just scares me. Yeah. I mean, you mm. can open up a an FX trading account and have 50 to 1 leverage just straight up. Yeah. Wow. Jeez. <laughs> it's, some, it's some scary stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't uh, look into that stuff too much, to be honest. But some, some of that stuff does scare me a little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you manage your currency exposures at all? I know you invest a nah. lot in the US. Yeah. I, I actually got asked that question not too long ago. Um about what, what do I do when it comes to uh, changes in currency. Um, I don't know if it's the right or wrong answer, and I guess everyone's got their own opinion, but I try, because I, I go in with the approach that I don't really focus on it too much. Mm-hmm. I yeah. just kind of, kind of with my strategy of investing, trying to just go extremely long-term. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. hope that if I keep investing for the long-term, in, in a long time, hopefully all things will basically average out to to yep. kind of normal conditions. So I, yeah. I tend not to stress about it too much. I, I try not to stress about it too much. Um, yeah. But yeah. Do you worry at all about um, like when you're evaluating a business, mm. are you worried that sort of the profitability of a company may be affected if they are exposed to different currencies? Yeah, I, I uh, suppose it's something to consider. Um, I guess... It, yeah, it depends on the yeah on the company and where they make most of their money. Um, yeah, but I again I, I, I suppose I just, if they if they're just sort of within one region, if it's just a U.S. company, yeah, then you can kind of ignore that for the most part. But then yeah. if it's a company that's operating worldwide, yeah, they could be fairly exposed. Like a miner, for example, maybe yeah, you fairly could you exposed. could get yourself into trouble. Yeah. Typically, I think the, the companies that I look at, well, that I have looked at, that's not a, a huge issue. And again, that most, like a lot of the 
companies that I've looked at do have quite diversified global revenues as well as the US and that sort of stuff. So yeah, kind of kind of go back to the idea of long term investing, and most things will just kind of. You know, probably don't, if you're going to hold a stock for 10 years, maybe not stress about the things that you, you can't, you know, that might happen in the future that you just can't see kind of thing. Yeah. Is, um, is this yeah. correct in saying, so like, say if you've got <clears throat> a company, Argentina's a, had a massive inflation recently. Yeah. Right. If you're obviously holding cash and there's inflation there, your, your cash, your buying power drops as the, as the currency inflates. But if yeah. you're holding assets say i don't know like a house say for example in that country the asset value of that house is going to increase at roughly the same rate of that inflation so um so like for example that you would it depends on the asset i guess so like for example we're obviously i'm predominantly exposed to the australian market so obviously there's currency risk there just holding australian dollars um, but if our, say overnight, our dollar drops against the U S you'll see an uptick in the following day, days trading, because, um, as the dollar drops, it basically looks like all stocks are now cheaper than the, what they oh, were right. a day before. So yeah. if it's at 70 cents, say and it drops to 69, well, they're still earning the same amount in terms of buying power, but the stock is now essentially cheaper so there's an arbitrage opportunity in there to make up yeah yeah Um, it's that's gonna very much depend on the asset because in obviously australia on the asx you have to uh transact everything and settle everything in australian dollars mm -hmm. whereas if you if it was gold or something say you hold held gold bullion it may not appreciate like that because you could sell it for any currency so it'll sort of hold its average value against all currencies or mostly against the US dollar mm-hmm. uh, but yeah definitely I'd when I look at a company if, if they are say running something big in Argentina or these countries which are fairly unstable it's mm-hmm. definitely a, a worry yeah yeah I think it's a worry in terms of like the risk of the instability in the country but I just wonder if if uh, the inflation will actually sort of cancel itself out um, just due to the changes in asset prices, as long as they're not holding too much in cash. Yeah. The, the other thing uh, you'd have to worry about is just the de- like the disabling of the economy Yeah, yeah uh, in that country. And so you could, like, while the inflation will cancel itself out, like, you don't know, like, sort of what are, what are the long-term implications for the revenue in that, co- in that country? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I think we'll just quickly run through the last few news items I had on here. Might skip the uh, BIS report, but just saw that, um, did you see Paul Volcker died, I think, on Monday, which Paul is quite Volker. sad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think I know who Paul Volcker is. He no, was a Fed chairman for a long time. Oh, uh, okay. Back sort of in the quite 70s. Yeah. Um, and he kind of ish... Uh, uh, ushered in the current state of the global markets because um, obviously in the 70s and early 80s inflation was very very high and as fed chairman he pushed rates up like to 20 percent um, and managed to quell that inflation and bring it down into 
what was called the Great Moderation, and he's been a fairly big figure in financial markets ever mm-hmm. since then. Um, so that he advises a lot of the Treasury secretaries and the presidents and current Fed governors. And um, man, twenty percent. Yeah, just imagine that, like having yeah. rates that high. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. It's like you've yeah. already got it at 19. You're like, nah, extra percent. Nineteen's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. not enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's the thing. I think we've spoken about it on the podcast before. Where we have, yeah. Our parents often like to talk about how cheap certain things were when they were kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I, I specifically remember sort of when we'd go in somewhere and we'd buy chewing gum or something oh i could mm. get like a hundred of those for a dollar when i was a kid yeah yeah um, but it's because that inflation was just such a like active part of everyday life mm. back then whereas now we don't i mean nobody really thinks about inflation all that much mm. but if it's 20 percent a year like you you really do think about inflation yeah yeah uh, which is and then obviously you then thinking about you're getting a job, uh, your job is raising your wages significantly every year. Um, There's like massive it, scares too, like in, in mortgage, like if you're holding a mortgage too. Man, imagine having th- those massive oh, interest rates. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it would just feel really, really bad. Yeah, there was, there was that one time, so this is just my parents' um, friends, they basically yeah. the the rates came down to about thirteen percent, so they they'd had yeah. a bit of a dip, and they kind of panicked and locked in those rates for oh. I think another five years. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's kind of like trying to pick or time. It's like yeah. it's essentially like timing your entry into a into the yeah. economy. Like it's just yeah. <laughs> it's just like when you don't know anything about it and then you're trying to time it. I just think it's terrible. But anyway, yeah. Good luck. They locked yeah. it in for like. <laughs> Five years at thirteen percent, and then obviously the the rates kept on um, coming down after that. Wow. Yeah, and obviously that's compounding every month, so mm. you're paying more than thirteen percent every year on mm. it. Like, yeah. It's just that's not a fun time. Yeah. No, no. Um, it's yeah. yeah it's, it's, I've I've never really in my well in our investing time frames not really experienced any sort of uh, environments like that. So. What, sure they'll pop what up was the streams. first date that you bought? Well, it doesn't have to be exact date, but oh, what, uh, yeah, when was like the first year. time yeah, you bought a stock? What time was it? Yeah. First stock mm. would have been... Uh, so, I've been running the channel for three years. So, probably a year and a half... A year to a year and a half before then. So, I would have been maybe... I'm 24 now. So, maybe 20 or 21 where I bought my... I remember I was in uni. So, I would have been like early 20s where I bought my first stock. Yeah. And yeah. oh my gosh. <laughs> oh dear. If only I knew what I know now, even half of what I know now back then, man. Yeah. yeah. At least why don't we different. why don't we jump into that? Yeah, um, go for it. So what so you said you started investing during uni. Yeah. Um so what started making you like sort of think about that or yeah. like in- interested in it? Yeah, the interesting thing was when I was going through uni, so I, I'm a physiotherapist, so um, I, I've i never studied any of this stuff at uni, economics or or um, or, or whatever. Um, 
so when I was studying physiotherapy going through my course, I kind of got uh, halfway through and then I kind of realized when I started looking at how much physios get paid, I was like, okay, I'm not really ever going to earn all that much. It's not really most physios. If you're actually practicing as a physio, unless you're walking for working for this massive sports team, you're never going to actually earn that much. So it's at that point where I was like, okay, if the job that I work is never going to pay me, you know, really, really well, then maybe I should just try and start focusing on turning whatever money I do make into, into more money. Um, Mm, and that's where, that's really where it it clicked. Um, the whole idea of passive income and, um, and investing kind of clicked in my mind that I, this is something that, you know, I should get started with. Um, yeah, so it was totally right. Like if you're on an 80, 80 K salary, say, yeah, and you're making 20 grand on the side doing whatever, Mm. then now you're, you've bumped it up to a hundred K, which is, you know, much more respectable. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it was around that time where I started just looking into it. Like, I, I didn't know anything about the stock market. I didn't know anything about investing. And no so, one how made... did you start trying to sort of find out about it? Well, the, the, the first thing that I did once I kind of clued into what it was all about is I went to my parents and I said, do, do we have anyone in the family that could tell me about this stuff? And they directed me to my uncle who I can't remember exactly what he does. He works in superannuation or something. So I just gave him a call. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I was like, Hey, uncle, um, uncle Peter, can you just tell me about maybe how, how would you get started with investing if you were me? And <laughs> this is the stupidest thing that I've ever done. He starts talking about how, you know, you, you don't know much, you're still young. So maybe you start with passive investment kind of strategies and ETFs. Look, you just participate in the market and hold for a long time and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> Thanks for your advice. And then I go out and look at look at a couple of YouTube videos and there's some expert saying, buy this stock, buy that stock. And I start buying these. Like I could be buy, a stock picker now. Go to Google. Best yeah, exa- exactly. stocks. Yeah, like, I mean, you look back at it, you're like, well, Brandon, what the hell were you doing? <laughs> it's like, you're so stupid um but yeah but yeah i mean i just didn't know any better at that time so you start picking into luckily at that time i did i decided to invest in um australian foundation investment company just at least that was something like passive that dividend compound interest you know yada yada widely diversified so at least and (laughs) as one of my better performing investments over time i actually still hold those shares i've never sold out (laughs) yeah yeah but um but yeah as as you can imagine when you start picking individual stocks and you know god knows you know nothing about investing then soon enough shit hits the fan and (laughs) you've lost money yeah it humbles you a little bit and i'm like okay maybe i'm maybe i'm not superman here maybe i should actually learn how to do this properly (laughs) yeah the problem is too like when you're searching you, you, you obviously you're going to get the loudest person on the web and like yeah, for exactly example right. you might get um like if you search anything about stocks you'll see stuff from motley fool or something yeah exactly yeah. so i remember one of my worst terrible like the, the most terrible investments i made were like mm. i saw something on motley fool in like the first few weeks of looking at it and yeah and yeah, uh same. Ended up <laughs> <it on> it. <laughs> yeah so i remember when i first started sort of looking into investing because i like kind of had a similar story to you brandon is i was roughly interested in the markets and whatnot but i went to uni at first to do physics and maths right yeah and then like 
I took a course in the business school, like an intro to finance course. And I was like, oh, this is actually, this stuff is really cool. Mm. And when you get into the business school, then you start to mix with people who are sort of clued into that and that's what they want to talk about. And so started getting interested in it. And then I kind of went to YouTube and started looking up stuff. And I mm. have you ever seen the Fousey, I think it's Fousey Tube, something like that on YouTube? Oh, no. What's that? Um, or Fousey Trader or something oh, like that. Oh, I know him. Yeah. Um, he, it's basically this guy, he day trades, right? Yeah. On the beach. Um, <laughs> yeah, on the beach. And he's always like in these crazy apartments in like Mexico. Of course. And he's like, course. oh, yeah, I just got up. I did my 50 minutes of trading, made yeah. like $10,000. Yeah. Uh, and like he's always like got these sort of his thumbnails are like him literally like on a beach with his like laptop and like Classic. three supermodels around yeah. him. And, yeah. <laughs> Who really wants to trade on a beach anyway? I feel like I'd get sick of it. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. wouldn't be able to see your screen. I hate seeing exactly. outside looking at a screen. <laughs> <laughs> Got I too just much bought, glare, I just lost all my money. <laughs> I bought this stock. I don't know what stock I bought. I can't see it. I hope it's going up right now. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I sort of had that and then I I kicked around and had a f- like did a few trades here and there. Mm. And I made some money luckily um, on some things and then... Um, I moved over here to Sydney to sort of chase down a career in finance and right. at that point realized like, oh my God, I'm so glad I didn't lose all my money yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I took a step back. I was like, all right, I need to reassess what I'm doing here. That uh, is I got the one lucky, thing, but... The one thing I appreciate about starting investing while I was at uni is that even though I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> at least I didn't have any money. <laughs> That's the yeah. same. Yeah, exactly. So so your Start- loss is limited. But if, if I had started once I had a full-time job, then it, things might have been much different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Start young while you only have a couple thousand dollars. Yeah. And if you lose it all, it doesn't matter. It's all like just paid tuition. So Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. Learn from your mistakes. That's the way I try to look at it as well. If you make a mistake and you lose money, just uh, you've paid to learn about a mistake. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. I mean, what was it like? I sort of, cause this is the thing that, did you ever do paper trading or like use any of the simulators or did you just jump straight into the market? No, I didn't. Like when, when I was back early on, I didn't even know what paper trading was. So, <laughs> yeah. Found about yeah. it after learning yeah. <laughs> learning about the stock yeah. market. I didn't know paper was a commodity. Okay. Because, <laughs> yeah, there's like a, I think it's a, a common thing for people to go and like fire up a simulator somewhere and do paper trading. And then yeah. they make money, uh, but then they put real money into the market and it mm. changes the game entirely. It's interesting paper trading, isn't it? Because you're right. It, people are very carefree because it's not, obviously it's simulated investing. There's no risk of financial loss, real financial loss. So yeah, I've, I feel like it, it's good in a way to help you dip your toes in, but still nothing's going to prepare you from, for that emotion of having your own money on the line. And yeah. it can, it, in some instances, it could cause you potentially to rush too quickly into an investment if you're just... You know, because obviously you're, you you bet big because there's no risk of financial loss. So if you yeah. hit a couple of, of of winners in a row, then you're like, oh man, I feel bad now because I've missed out on that opportunity for real mm. and can make you rush. Yeah. But I think overall, all things considered, it's probably still a pretty good um, pretty good thing for for new investors to try. 
Yeah, and I think it it comes down to the person. Like, there's it's a tool, right? Yeah, and like any tool can be used well or can be used incorrectly, and so if you are responsible about it and you realize that it's not going to be the same when you actually put money in the market and you just use it as a way to educate yourself and whatnot, then mm. it's great. But if you, like you said, you just sort of make a few big bets and they go your way and like, oh my God, I, should, I can be rich in like yeah. four years, I can retire. I'm going to throw all my <laughs> money in the market and that's when it's going to blow up on you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's not a... Uh, it, it's like anything. I think even books and things like that, you can read Same books trap, and yeah. as long as you're uh, responsible about it and realize that it's one person's opinion, then like you're not going to come off worse. But I think the danger is when you get people reading books and then they think that's the gospel truth. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, yeah, they run into some, some issues. Yeah. Um, so on that topic, so once you sort of dip your toes in and, started learning did you go and try to learn from the internet did you pick up books or yeah well i started just looking at things on the internet uh, and similar to what you were saying before matt with the motley fool it's just like mm-hmm. you know as a as a new investor you're reading you're like how am i getting all of these amazing tips for free they're not even charging <laughs> me for anyway so yeah you, you learn your lesson pretty quickly there uh, about opinionated stock market research but um yeah after that look i, I kind of hit a point where um you know, this picking individual stocks without knowing what you're talking about didn't work. So try and start kind of making uh, making my YouTube videos then. Initially, I was just talking about things like this. These are some mistakes I've made, so please don't <laughs> follow my footsteps. Um, I think one of the first videos I made was just about, hey, listed investment companies, guys. They're actually pretty good after all. <laughs> um, yeah. But so I kind of started there. And then I, I kind of, as I, I, I started out when I realized that very much a passive investor, um, but I was still very interested in the idea of, of individual stock analysis, but I recognized that I didn't really know what I was doing. So at that point, that's when I did start kind of picking up the books and, and trying to read more about it. I've never been a, a, a big reader. So I, I, it's to, read, to read a proper book is like a real slog for me because my brain just gets bored after a while. But um, yeah. one, one book that... Um, you guys probably know what I'm going to say right now, but one book that I find found really helpful um, was Rule One by Phil Town. Um, kind of a, a good book for beginners that kind of takes the core principles of what people like Warren Buffett do with their investing and just breaks it down into kind of actionable steps or, or not even actionable, just like explains like how... Uh, what's what's an example? For instance, like oh, one one of the things that Warren Buffett likes is a really good, strong, you know, honest management team. And then Phil Town takes that concept and he says, well, if you wanted to assess something like a management team, you might look at something like their return on invested capital, or you might look at how they're managing their debt, or or those sort of topics. So I found that book was really helpful to start to break down these core principles into a bit more detail and, and help me learn about, um, yeah, yeah. Just like the, the, in, in more depth, the, the components or the things to look out for in each of those core categories that people like Warren Buffett use for their investing. Yeah. Um, I do have a question for you off just stringing off this. So obviously you, you have stuff that you look out for and things you, you want to see in a stock, but, are there any things that you that are like red flags for you? Like you're coming across yeah. a stock and you're like, no, I'm not going to buy this because of this. I think yeah, one of the 
from looking at people like Warren Buffett and and like how you know he's basically rule number one is don't lose money and rule number two is don't forget rule number one it's kind of just <laughs> making sure yeah that um that the the business that you're looking at is relatively low risk so for instance i i would uh, back in the day mess around with businesses that say dipped into negative operating cash flow whereas now i just make that a bit of a rule that actually when i'm looking at a business i really like to see say profitability which i think a lot of investors would agree with Mm -hmm. um like another thing might be uh like uh really really high levels of debt um so just like a general rule of thumb is i like um so total debt to be able to be paid back within three years of free cash flow. So if they've got like really high levels of debt um, plus negative like operating cash flow, these are kind of things where I'm like, all right, maybe I should really reconsider whether I want to look into this business. They'd, they'd be yeah. some of the ones that I'd, I'd look at. I don't like um, companies with a really low return on invested capital. I kind of like the management to be doing a really good job at, at growing the business um, by reinvesting in the business, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so but, just on that, actually, so yeah. I know you, you guys talk about return on invested capital a fair bit. And I guess it, it kind yeah. of gets reinforced because return on invested capital includes your equity and your debt, right? Yeah, yeah, So yeah. You, can, you can kind of fudge the numbers a little bit if you take on a bunch of debts and then yeah, I guess uh, you could, yeah. like get that, that leverage up. Um, yeah. So are you also looking at the return on equity to make sure they're like, sort of at least close to each other, or yeah, I, yeah, I probably, I probably would. I think at the end of the day, when you're looking at the numbers, you like all these numbers are good to look at, but it comes back down to your understanding of the business. So if if yeah. things are, are not and not making sense, or I, I, I like to if I'm going to invest in a company, I like to understand the numbers in as much, or even just like understand the business in in as much depth as possible to try and really make sense of why the numbers are like they are so that I can just make a yeah. better informed decision. So I guess for instance, like I, I wouldn't, I, I'm not like, how do I say? It? I guess I'm not like a formulaic investor, like tick this box, tick that box, tick that box, tick that box and buy the stock. I guess I use those kind of measures as general guides, but I think everything really that I do comes back down to understanding the business. So I think that's what, what I would stress. Yeah. Yeah. So it, you're sort of saying that the more important part is you really having a good feeling about the business. And as long as the numbers are roughly looking yeah. okay, well, it, you're, yeah. you'd be fairly happy to make an investment. Yeah. Or even just step one would be understand the business so that you can understand why those numbers are like they are. For instance, like, yeah. you know, if, if one of the things that I might like to see is that, you know, roughly equity and free cash flow or, or whatever, like revenue growth, they kind of keep up at about 10% or more per year. Um, but then if you get a company that's had its free cash flow go down and has only grown 2% in the last year, like for me, for for some people following a formulaic kind of method, tick boxes, they might see that and go, all right, now, now that that company's out for me. And I'm not so much like that. It's just like, okay, I've I've now got to go in and try and understand why that's happened. Um, yeah, yeah, and, that makes sense. Yeah, if yeah. there's like, and you could so you can kind of think about it too. Like if you've got two of the same sets of like financial data, right? Like two identical yeah. companies, but one is has like a cult like following, like Tesla. Yeah. That's not gonna. It's, it doesn't appear in the in the data that you yeah, have there. True. 
and that's there, something yeah. that you would have to analyze outside of those those that box ticking that you would have had to have done yeah 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 i think that's part of the kind of warning i have against books like rule one is that it can almost seem like it's prescribing like a tick box exactly for, yeah. like formula yeah. which like you're saying is if you if you subscribe too heavily to something like that, you're going to end up missing things. Exactly. And right. yep. either you're going to miss good investments or you're going to make bad investments. Yeah. Without realizing why. Yeah. Yeah. And because, because nobody is a savant and completely understands if this is how you find a really, really good company. Yeah. Um, and like, it needs to tick these four boxes. Well, that doesn't doesn't make sense, does it? Like companies no. are very very complex things, exactly right, yeah. and you can't distill it down to the four <laughs> boxes that you need to need to tick. Yeah, um, yeah. Another I was thing watching. to consider. Sorry, you go. Sorry, no, you go, Brandon. I was just saying the other thing to consider as well with these investing books that seem to break things down very simply, almost like a formula, is that you got to remember what the author of that book is trying to do. They're trying to sell a book. Yeah. <laughs> so for yeah. these books, you know, if, if they want to sell a lot of copies of an investing book, it firstly, it has to be simple because they have to be able to sell it to anyone. Mm-hmm. And it has to seem like if you follow this formula, you will make a lot of money. So yeah. other things to consider when it comes to those sort of investing books as well. Yeah, and on that point, there are uh, certain authors out there who whose book is expressly designed to get you to go to one of their seminars. Yeah, and then their seminars are expressly designed to make you go to more of their seminars. <laughs> <laughs> um, and My I think private like, coaching. Of, yeah, yeah, and in the last sort of year or so, we've seen that uh, sort of come out about Robert Kiyosaki. Uh, yeah. obviously sort of a cult cult favorite. Uh, but the, he, some of his later on seminars are like fifteen thousand dollars. How crazy is that? I think his yeah. top one was like forty grand, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. It was like, come come spend forty thousand dollars to learn <laughs> yeah. about personal finance from me. Put it on your credit you card can, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> First rule: you're all dumbasses for spending all this money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I was I was watching a. <clears throat> I don't I don't know. I haven't looked deeply looked into this, so I don't want to spread this kind of rumor around. I was just watching a video earlier today about um, uh, a, a course, uh, a face-to-face or a seminar that was being sold by um, one of the big um, finance uh, YouTubers. And the course is, or the seminar is about um, high ticket sales tactics. <laughs> and apparently if, when you go to that course, He's just using high ticket sales tactics to get you to buy the next thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just it's like that's what the course that's what the seminar is about and he's using those tactics and he's fooling you right now. <laughs> right in yeah. front of your face. Jeez. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's not not brilliant. I mean, the um rich dad poor dad has got some great principles in it, but then like don't go to his seminars people. Um <laughs> Like the, the, the worst one I've seen is um, Nick Leeson. He's a, a trader who brought down Bearings Bank and he now does personal finance seminars and tells you how to deal with debt. And like, I mean, if there's one person who you shouldn't be listening to, it's that guy. <laughs> and he, he brought down one of the oldest banks in the world because yeah. he mismanaged things. <laughs> 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 it just seems like... Uh, 
10 minute Google search on him. I mean, he went to prison yeah. for, for being bad at managing yeah. risk. And now like, Immediately, uh, I'm going to say no to attending your seminar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's pretty bad. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to then go back to your investment research process. Yeah, sure. Um, so when you're sitting down to to try and find an investment to make, is it something that you might find the stock just comes across your radar somewhere and you think... Oh, yeah, I'll have actually, a look into that. Or yeah. are you trying to specifically build out your portfolio? So you sit down like, okay, I'm going to spend a few hours now trying to find something. Yeah. Well, I, I, my kind of first step in the whole process is that I really try and just stay with companies that have some sort of relevance back to who I am, what I do, that kind of thing. Um, because Because I'm not... Um, you know, I'm, I'm not someone that has, you know, multiple degrees in these sort of topics and, and is paid to sit in front of a computer and research all day. Um, I That's my first, my actual first step. I kind of go through, I write down, like, what am I really passionate about? And then, like, what, where do I spend my time? Where do I spend my money? Those kind of questions. And I try and answer them really thoroughly and link, start to link what I do to, like, uh, public companies. And then from there, I kind of get recurring companies and that obviously sends me the signal that, well, I'm obviously interested in this because I find, for instance, one thing that is firmly outside my circle of competence is banks. So for me personally, I don't know what people's opinions are, but say a, a bank out there might be a really offering a really great investment opportunity. Um, for me, the fact that I don't interact with banks at all, I don't care about banks. If I sit down and I try and analyze one of the, you know, big four, then I'm just, it's going to be, it's going to take me a long time. I'm not going to be hugely interested. And because of those two factors, I'm probably going to start to miss things or not understand the business in as much detail as what I should to, to be able to make an investment in it. So I think my first step in the process is not really trying to scan what's, what's out there, um, I, I kind of just try and scan what I'm interested in or, or what I know that if I were to look into that company, I'd be able to keep up with uh, because I, I'm nowhere near the best investor in the world, like nowhere close, obviously. So I've got to kind of understand that um, and just pick things that I, I could potentially understand because at the end of the day, like even Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, two of the most experienced investors in the world, they like businesses that are really simple. <laughs> like they, <laughs> yeah. they, they'll stand up there and say, well, why are you trying to look into this complicated business? Just look into one that's simple. There are so, I think there's something, I, I can't even remember, I re- read some stat, there's something like 45,000 public companies in the world. I'm like, that's, yeah. I don't even know how true that stat is, but even if it's remotely true, that's a lot of companies. So I think yeah. just find find ones that, Especially if you're new to investing or relatively new, find ones that you f- you find interesting or that you do have the experience or the knowledge that you could potentially understand that business fully and uh, probably go from there. I've yeah. got a bit of a um, hypothetical for you. On oh, that. go for it! Yeah, yeah. Um, so say so say like you, you do that process right and you find yep. you find one that you actually end up liking really yep. really and you're like okay this is on the watch list to buy yep. like I'm going to buy this eventually. Yep. Basically. If it's trading at say a hundred and five dollars, and your buy price or the the price you want to buy at is a hundred dollars, would you wait 
and be patient and see if that comes down even further? Yeah. Or would you just go out and take that because it's a, a solid stock and a solid investment? Yeah, I think I've, I've run into this problem before because, for instance, one of the uh, companies I was looking into uh, a year or two ago was Facebook. Mm-hmm. And I had, I had this number in my head from the value. Like at that time, I was only using one valuation method and I had this number of $100, like mm-hmm. what your example is. And it got down to something like 120, 125 yep, yep. or something. And um, I, I stood up and said, no, 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 it's not cheap enough yet. Don't do it, Brandon. And um, sure enough, it got down to 120 and now it's back up. At, I don't even know, like 200 or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, that so kind is of, that still your process? Like in terms of that rigid discipline or do you have a little bit yeah. more of a... No, I, yeah. I do have a bit more leeway in it because since then working with Hamish as well, um, he's taught me more about things that are taught in uni like discounted cash flow methods evaluation and, and that sort of stuff. So I've kind of got, I work through, say, a, a Warren Buffett's kind of owner's earnings with a capitalization rate kind of valuation might work through kind of what we've got, me and Hamish. Um, well, I basically just use Hamish's method of doing discounted cash flow. Um, and then I still use that fill town kind of margin of safety method um, to kind of, it kind of gives you three, <clears throat> three different numbers. And that's kind of reset my brain, not so much to think about fair fair value or intrinsic value is one specific number that you might adhere to. So yep. you might say fair value is a range between here and here. And yep. then yeah. a 30% margin of safety might be a range between here and here. Like if it got there, I'd be comfortable with investing. But if it got a bit lower than that, then that's still in that kind of 30% margin of safety range. So that's how I'd kind of think about it now, I suppose. So I think that's why one of the, actually you've brought up one of the, things that's changed i guess in my investing strategy probably over the last two years yeah Mm, yeah cool so when you're obviously you're using the i i guess you're using hamish's spreadsheet there um yeah yeah well i i do it um i do it manually just because i find doing it manually really sets it you know makes makes it make more sense in my brain but yeah it's the yeah method but like he... similar process exactly right yeah it's the it's the process that if you worked through his spreadsheet then you would probably get the same numbers that i do yeah yeah and so what i'm kind of interested in then is your mm. one of your core sort of assumptions that you're using there is your growth rate yes um are you coming to that estimation through sort of digging into the financials and maybe mm. projecting out different lines of the financials or yep. finding the like sort of operating uh, like the operating drivers that underlie that top level growth rate or yep. is there another method that you're using no i think when it comes down to judging a growth rate it really comes down to your understanding of the business and understanding of the industry it sits in and that sort of stuff but um for a bit of a like for a ballpark, I always look at, say, like long-term uh, equity growth, um, that kind of yep. stuff, uh, long-term um, free cash flow growth. Um, it Yeah, it, it generally comes back though. Like I also, actually, I do check my numbers against analyst estimates as well because I'm still obviously very aware that, um, you know, I could be very wrong. Um, so I always like to take you know, what, what is, what is this company from my understanding of just the business itself? What is it likely to grow at, you know, versus its industry and that sort of stuff. Then maybe check a growth rate that I've come up ballpark with, you know, maybe something like long-term growth rates in equity or free cash flow, and then check that against, well, what do the, the analysts say as well, just to make sure that 
you don't end up trusting a number that just seems way too high. Um, yeah. And I also like to try and play around with different growth rates in those formulas to try and reverse engineer where, like, where the stock price is right now. If I had a stock price of two hundred dollars and I, you know, wanted a fifteen percent return annually or thereabouts, like, what growth rate are investors kind of ex- uh, kind of accepting if you were to get a fifteen percent return annually? Yeah. So I kind of reverse engineer it a little bit in that way as well. But yeah, I think that that's how yeah. I'd, I'd go about finding growth rates. Yeah. It's funny because when I sort of started trying to figure out, well, how do I estimate how much a stock is going to grow by? Yeah. The, being within a business school environment, you go down the academic route and, okay, so how am I going to model this out? And, yeah. Um, yeah. And so I've done a couple of courses um, by Wall Street Prep. I don't know if you've heard of them. No. Um, they operate mostly in the US, but they've got a sort of online uh, course that they um, have available. And they train a lot of the analysts at the investment banks in New York. Okay. Um, yeah. So if you go into sort of, I think, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, those sorts of banks, a lot yeah. of them, if you go and you get an analyst seat, um, you'll go on one of their training courses. Uh, for right. a week or so, okay. and they'll just run you through a crash course, basically on uh, financial modeling. And yeah. so the way I think about it is a lot of what they teach, um, which yeah. is dig into sort of five or however many years of data that you want, yeah. build it into a spreadsheet, and then go line by line by line and think about how that is trending, how you might grow it um, right. on all three statements. Yeah. And so if you look at, so the case study that I, I did through them was Apple. Right, and yeah. so you go through and you build out like five or six years worth of data from Apple. And this was back when they were reporting unit sales. Mm. And so what you would then do is you would break out, okay, how is the iPhone uh, actually sort of trending what can we expect? We're going to project that forward and then build that into a projection of revenue. I mean, you do that for yeah. the iPhone, you do it for iPad, for each each individual product line. And mm. that's sort of more conducive to the investment bank environment because what you would then do is you would get an expert in iPhone sales in China or iPhone sales in the UK and they could give you their projections and you could plug it into this big model. Right. Um, so that's yeah. the way I like to sort of think about things is looking at their core revenue drivers, looking yeah. at their... And I think that's really interesting too, because if you did, if you say just looked at something like a sales growth rate, a long-term, say like 10 years uh, average annual sales growth for something like Apple and plug that into, I'll trust that that'll happen in the next 10 years, then you might end up with, you know, a, a very... Um, a very large valuation considering the last 10 years for Apple has been an explosive time for something like the sale of their iPhone. Whereas I think now more recently we're seeing the sales of the iPhone really uh, stagnate or I think, has it even dipped down a little bit? I can't quite remember. Yeah. I think it's come back a little bit. Mm, Um, Obviously the average selling price has gone up quite significantly. Yes. And it seems like they're transitioning over to sort of a, three or four year upgrade cycle for people yeah. on the iPhone. And um, I think so, 
Yeah. Yeah, I think that's why um, kind of I, I, I always try and go back to the understanding of the business because I think for that that exact reason, if you were to, just to trust a long-term equity growth rate or a long-term sales growth rate or a long-term free cash flow growth rate, then you could trap yourself into into missing something like, okay, this this the last five years of this company has seen explosive growth or the last 10 years has seen explosive growth, but maybe that won't happen in the future kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But I think that that's that's a very uh, that's what what you're talking about is an ext- sounds like an extremely uh, thorough way. I think that 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 would be like the way to go if you have like yeah just, if you have the, the problem, if you have the knowledge and the time to go through that that sounds like yeah. the way to go. Yeah. The the problem with it really is that it's great that you get down to a granular level of detail, but what it also allows is if you're not experienced in a a certain industry and you're just sort of pulling numbers like you you end up having to pull assumptions out of somewhere um for like if you're looking at something like apple where you've got like 20 lines on the income statement 20 lines on the balance sheet 20 lines on the uh, cash flow statements and so you're forecasting maybe 50 like 40 or 50 different variables Mm -hmm. like it's kind of you've got to have a fairly high level of expertise to do that. You have to really understand that, yeah. Yeah, and so I think it's probably worth an exercise to at least look at look at those lines and think about their trends. But sort of really digging into, it, I think you probably open yourself up to errors that you can then not really account for. Um, and so when you come back and like if it changes your growth estimate by half a percent or like what you've maybe just added complexity for no reason there Mm. yeah Um, yeah so when you go into sort of understanding the business yeah i'm kind of interested in what's your process there are you typing the name of the business into google are you going straight to the financial statements or yeah i'm i'm just like reading the annual reports basically um yeah. I try. I, I I listen to when when I first approach a stock, then I'm kind of reading the annual reports because I've got to try and figure out what the business actually is, like what it actually does. For instance, I started looking at Disney um, when what probably maybe like a year ago or something, <clears throat> and I was just like, oh yeah, you know, they make movies and they uh, have theme parks, and I was yeah. like, whoa, actually Disney is this enormous globally diversified entertainment business that yeah it boils down into four key revenue segments um but they're also you know at the time i was reading they're buying these assets from 21st century fox and they're building disney plus and at that time i was like wow you know there's actually this there's a lot disney does a lot like they own espn i didn't even know that they own like the abc network over in um over in america so yeah the, the good thing about an annual report, like I think people get intimidated by annual reports, especially as beginners, which is fair enough because they're bloody long and they're bloody dense, but um, they they do have that information in there, especially that first section where they talk about what the business is and the revenue, the, the breakdown of the business segments and results. So I think yeah. that a lot of the understanding can come from reading like a couple of years worth of annual reports to get up to speed with what the business actually is. Um, yep. And then from there, I, I really like to listen to conference calls. I just like to hear 
um, what the management um, presents, because obviously they tend to present the, the key metrics that investors are, um, are interested in. And if they don't, then listening to that Q&A section, then the, the big you know um, analysts or whatever, they quickly poke and probe at the most pressing issues. So I find that, that if you listen to a couple of quarters worth of conference calls, then that can help in kind of understanding the current issues or the, the, the current thinking around this business. I think that would yeah. probably be the place that I would start learning to <clears throat> to understand the business a bit more. It's probably, it's probably more entertaining for someone who doesn't like to read as much. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So are you then going and you're taking notes as you're reading or is it kind of more, I'm going to just sit down and read this, yeah. say, two I, or three annual reports and just get a, get a feel for it. Yeah, I think it's more, when I'm first approaching it, that's definitely what it's more like. I, I just want to, like, if there's something that pops up that's just like, oh, I really should follow up on this, I'll definitely jot it down. Um, yeah. But I'm really, I guess for me, the way that I've worked through getting a better understanding of the business is just learning how, like, a just good description of what the business actually does and then going straight to just the revenue breakdown um, and the and the uh, operating results to see, okay, this is what, for instance, biz, uh, Disney has these four operating um, segments or these four business segments. Then looking at the financials and looking, okay, well, which one of these actually matters for Disney? Are there any of these four segments that really don't matter too much, don't really affect the business too much? Um, and kind of looking at just generally, just generally like revenue numbers, just to understand uh, what areas of business are really important for them and what areas are not as important. Yeah. And what about industry analysis? So getting an idea of, of obviously, I've heard you speak several times on your podcast about yep. understanding that every industry is going to have kind of different metrics that you look at. Yeah. Um, so how do you get a feel for that? I think this is one of the areas that I struggle with the most. I've, I'm still yet to find a really good like go-to resource that gives you um, industry data. Um, there's like bits and pieces here or there, but I think that's mainly because every industry is so vastly different and yeah. makes it quite quite difficult. I've kind of just, I don't know, maybe you guys can add to this discussion as well. I kind of, the way that I approach it is try and find, you know, just general industry data and try and narrow it down to perhaps the top three, four, five players in that industry. And then mm -hmm. as well as kind of trying to understand the business that you're interested in, try and understand at least at a basic level, what the biggest companies in that industry are doing to kind of, if you can understand even at a basic level, maybe what the top three or the top five companies in the industry are doing then I think you'll fairly quickly pick up on what that industry is all about and kind of what um, what maybe the headwinds or the tailwinds are. And from there, you can kind of perhaps try and do more specific research. Yeah. Perfect um, example of this is just like your car industry. So mm. you can obviously see like there's been, say, declining rates in uh, internal combustion engine cars, whereas mm. the electric vehicles are picking up, you know, quite a bit. And you see looking at other companies, they're starting to diversify their capital expenditure in towards more of that electric vehicle stuff. So you can sort of mm. see there's more of a trend towards that coming in the future. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I think what we'll do is we'll hold off on the EV discussion just for a little bit because I know we're going to dive into that. <laughs> um, but I just thought I just going to kind of nail down the end of this investment thing. So mm. um, I've actually got a resource for you. I can send it over to you. Yeah, for sure. It yeah, is a really paid resource, but I think that a lot of libraries will have it available. It's yeah. called Ibis World. It's an Australian uh, okay. company, and they effectively do industry-based research for right. like the last fifty years. They've done it, and they. Effectively, you can search up a company and it'll tell you it's in this industry and then in this sort of sub-sector. Um, and then it lays out sort of the value drivers, um, things that it's correlated to. So yep. whether that be population growth or uh, like sales, like car sales growth or petroleum yep. prices or something like that. And mm. then it kind of breaks that down like for you. Um, it's called Ibis World. Right. Is um, it for Australian businesses or, or international so, businesses as well? Yeah. Or? So they do, They, I think you can access all around the world. They are mostly focused on Australia, but right. there definitely are um, other ones. Uh, you can definitely access US companies. So I've had a look at US companies on there. Right. Um, okay, yeah. And then... Um, they also do private companies. They do, yeah, it's a, a huge range of um, insight. Um, right, okay, cool. But then the other thing that I quite like to do is just read books about, uh, not necessarily about the industry, but read books, like say memoirs about people who have been in the industry. Um, right. So like an example is I read, and you, you'd be interested in this, is I read uh, To Pixar and Beyond by Lawrence Levy. Oh, cool. Um, and he was the CFO at Pixar when they went public. Right. And so Steve, Steve Jobs hired him to effectively take the company public. And that's a really interesting story because it, it lays out kind of the business model of a company like that. Um, and so I find that a, quite a good way of getting an understanding of how a business works. Yeah. Because um, like one of their... One of the big challenges at Pixar was that they were trying to compete with Disney at, at, at first, obviously. They were trying to compete with Disney, but they didn't have all of Disney's uh, diversified assets. So obviously the reason Disney has so many assets when its core business is making animated movies, uh, not so much today, but certainly sort of through yeah. the, the 20th century, is they it takes a long time to make animated movies and it's very difficult in the film industry. If you have a movie that flops, you don't make any money off it. So you've got to make sure your movies are like top notch. And so what they did was they built out the theme parks as a continuing revenue stream to support the uh, development of the movies because the movies could take two or three years to make. Uh, and so that's the theme parks are effectively there just to fund the making of the movies. <laughs> and then if the movie was successful, they could add the new characters into the theme park, which would then kick over the theme park for a bit longer to let them make the next movie. Uh, wow. So that, that was yeah really fascinating. Obviously now they've uh, got to a point where they're not going to fail. Um, so they can uh, expand into other things. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'll send you over that that link yeah, to Ibis World. Thanks. It's definitely Thanks. very interesting. Um, and so then, I guess once you've sort of understood the the business and you feel like you have a good understanding of it, yeah, uh, and you've done your valuation, are there are you then putting that 
on a watch list and then kind of checking up on it on a yeah. like daily or weekly basis? Are you keeping up to date with the news? And Yeah. Yeah, I'll just try and keep up to date with the news. Um, I come back, probably really look at it once a quarter with all the uh, earnings and the conference calls that come out and that sort of stuff. Um, but to be honest, it's especially with, I feel like the, the numbers that I put into my valuation methods are really quite strict. Like I really want to, what I'm finding at the moment is that I think a lot of investors are, is that for good quality companies, the prices are are very, very high. Yeah. Um, So unfortunately it's kind of boring, but a lot of the stuff I'm doing at the moment is just waiting. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. Um, Because I like one of the rules that I do follow is I don't want to be trapped buying into high quality businesses when the price is, too high um that's kind of one of my core things that's kind of run me into trouble in the past is investing in businesses that might be good businesses but the price is just too high um and then the price comes down back to a fair value and you you know it's a great business but you've still lost money on your investment so yeah um yeah that's um that at the moment that's basically what i'm doing i'm just trying to stay up to date um as best i can um yeah look at i mean use the time effectively um while i'm waiting but yeah i i think one of the things that you learn um looking at people like warren buffett and charlie munger and peter lynch and whatever all those guys really is just patience (laughs) yeah yeah, although it's hard and i I suppose we're we're young so we've got that kind of pressure in the back of our minds that investing (laughs) works so well um if you get started early and then you're like all right i'm getting started early oh shit i'm not actually doing that much as a long-term investor so yeah but um i think one of the really interesting things about buffett is he's Mm. clearly very very intelligent and so i was going to bring this up earlier when he says he looks at simple businesses and then you see that he's got investments in like wells fargo and Yeah. yeah they're simple to him Simple for him, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because he's got... But he's also very... Um, and I think this is something that sort of contributed to his success is that he's very clued in on Wall Street. I think his dad was on Wall Street for a while. Right. Um, and he's got family members who are in politics. So he's got connections or he had connections going in. And I think he actually works on Wall Street for a, a very short amount of time um, before he went to business school. Um, and so he's got those connections and so he's able to get a real feel of the pulse of a business uh, from the inside. Um, not necessarily like he's doing insider trading, but he's, there was a, certainly a culture, uh, through the seventies and the eighties where certain investors were definitely given more information. Uh What was called the, what was it called? The whisper number or something on wall street. It was like, it was like companies gave out numbers to a select few of privy analysts who would then then buy up the stock before everyone else. Wow. Yeah. That's Dutch. So, yeah. And even, (laughs) even just having like, when, if you're doing uh, research on a company, like you, you're limited to what you can find online, right? Um, And maybe what you can like get through books. And like if Warren Buffett's doing research on a company he just calls up and says hey i'm coming in for a meeting make sure your ceo's there Um, (laughs) imagine if they did that they'd be like sorry who are you (laughs) (laughs) 
guys, I'm going to be in the States next week. Can you just make sure uh, Bob Iger's around at Disney HQ? I just want to come in and have a chat with him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Far out. <laughs> well, that's so really that, interesting that's... that you bring yeah. that up, Jason, because um, that's one of the things that I took out of a recent Warren Buffett, or not maybe not a recent Buffett interview, but one I watched recently, was that he, he always talks about... Um, how much he reads and how thoroughly he understands the businesses before he invests in them. And then in this interview, he said, um, yeah, companies come to us because we know at Berkshire, we're going to be able to make a decision <clears throat> within a day or two. I was like, Wait, yeah, that seems to contradict what like everything that you've, you've said in the past, but that, kind yeah, of well, sense. I think, I think that kind of comes down to the fact that he does like what you're saying uh, you do is that he has an understanding of, a huge range of uh, companies and he has a very deep understanding of them. So when a company does come to, to Berkshire, he either says, no, don't understand it. Or he says like, yeah, I've already done the research and I'm happy to do this. Um, and so he can make that decision very quickly because he's got the information already and he's, he's done all the research already. And I mean, you saw that in, um, during the GFC, they tried to get him to buy Lehman, um, and he said no. Uh, but and I think he ended up bailing out one of the banks. I forget which one. Uh, but yeah, he ended up do, making. Actually, I think that's how he got into Wells Fargo. Um, he yeah, he was basically the the Treasury Secretary was on the phone to Buffett several times over uh, Lehman weekend to try and get him in to, to buy Lehman and give Lehman a bit of breathing space. Um, but I think that there's an interesting um, sort of image of Buffett that he's just like sitting down in Nebraska and he gets his McDonald's every day. And um, <laughs> like there's, there's, there's a brand that's been built around Buffett yeah. to make him look like that because it, sell, it sells books and it sells documentaries and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but He's definitely much more clued into Wall Street than people than people realize. Yeah, um, he's definitely got very t- close ties in there. And I mean, I, mean, I still want him to be it... my pop pop like figure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's, it's it's great watching him and Bill Gates go to Dairy Queen and make their make their ice creams. And... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, he's a a very very intelligent guy, definitely. And um, he's, I think he there was an element of luck where he managed to be very intelligent, be very clued in, know what he's doing in sort of the biggest American bull run there has ever been. Yeah. And so he was in the right place at the right time, but he's also done the right things. Yeah. Um, so why don't we pivot and go, go over to EVs because yeah. we're definitely going to be on this one for a while. So first off, <laughs> um, I wanna, I wanna know. You obviously watched the Cybertruck event live. Um, oh yeah. What was your reaction when France threw that ball at the window? Man, that <laughs> I don't know about you. Did you guys both watch the event? Yeah, yeah, yeah live. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, to personally, I thought that was the cringiest event I've ever seen. It was <laughs> yeah. just like I, I love the guy and I love the company. But when I was watching that, I was like uncomfortable. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was very it. cool at the start, like with all the lasers yeah. and, and then it comes up. But then they like got started getting out of the car wearing like 
sci-fi exactly, costumes yeah. with wings and like leather it was yeah. it was kind of set by the tone of the crowd too like the the crowd was like what is going on exactly like, right, is this yeah. so yeah even the reaction yeah. for the crowd was a bit cringe as well i was talking to gally russell who runs the hyperchange channel um last week and he was he was there um and yeah, yeah you're right he, he said it's it, the vibe was great at the start and then they smashed the two windows and then everybody <laughs> was just so flat. Yeah. And yeah. everybody from from the crowd being flat, Elon was like really awkward from, from there on. Um, and it's, I don't know, to me, he agreed. To me, it seemed even just watching the live stream that he really just tried to to rush through the rest of the presentation. Like, I just wanted to get it done, which maybe that was fair enough. He just wanted to get the Cybertruck. He should have just gotten in the Cybertruck and just, like, did a three-point turn and turned it the other way. <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs> have the windows facing the opposite direction. Yeah, that was really odd. Like, the whole time then, he was standing in front of this broken window. Yeah, yeah. and all the photos and everything. Oh, it was just cringy. But it was also more than that. Like, it seemed like he was just... It was just, like, not not in sync very well like he would start talking about a point and then the slide would change and yeah. the slide was different to what he was talking about and yeah that was yeah. like what made me think that it wasn't planned was just mm. the tone from elon like he didn't seem comfortable at all no he didn't so, seem but if like it was planned he obviously he'd be all good but although yeah. he never seems comfortable on stage does that's he? true <laughs> that great, is also true <laughs> Yeah, he's not the best public. He's not Steve Jobs. No. <laughs> but, I mean, there, there's been times when, when Apple events have gone all pear-shaped as well. Yeah, true. I mean, it's just part of like presenting things on stage. I mean, have yeah. you seen the videos of where I think they were trying to demonstrate FaceTime? Right. Uh, possibly. And Steve Jobs is up there on stage just not working. Right. And he basically they figured out it was because in the convention center there was like hundreds of obviously bloggers mm. sitting there with their laptops open and uh oh, like all connected on the wi-fi so it destroyed the wi-fi and so like whatever they were trying to demonstrate wasn't working i think it was facetime yeah. and so he says all right so i've got some really cool stuff to show you guys if you want to see it but it's gonna mean you're all gonna have to turn off your computers <laughs> and put them on the floor and then everyone's like kind of sitting there and like kind of looking around and yeah um is this is this happening like i'm mm. here to live blog this events yeah <laughs> and now he's he's uh, i don't i don't know what to do and then eventually you start, start seeing all the laptops closing and like yeah. they show it off right yeah there's been another time when i don't know something wasn't working you could see he gets pissed and he kind of like throws it off stage <laughs> <laughs> like yeah someone lost, someone lost their job after that one yeah um, <laughs> But yeah, it kind of happens. But then part of me either, I mean, it, it's kind of the perfect thing to happen, right? Like everybody knows what the Cybertruck looks like. Yeah. And like everybody saw it within 12 hours. Everybody knew that the Cybertruck was a thing. Yeah. And it's very everybody was talking about it. So because, part of me yeah. thinks like, was it planned? Yeah. Like, I Yeah, that's exactly right. Like, I think just from watching it and just looking at human behavior that that was not planned in the slightest, especially because yeah. Elon was like quick on Twitter and, you know, here, this is, th we did this earlier and it worked. See, look, it, yeah. it wasn't our fault. But you're right. I've been seeing people writing articles, making videos saying 
Tesla has just pulled off some marketing, you know, some PR perfect storm here because you're right. Everyone, basically, you could talk about this to anyone and say, hey, what do you think of the Tesla Cybertruck? And they probably have an opinion on it. They've probably seen a photo. (laughs) Yeah. And so I think it, yeah, it's one of those things that because it's such a polarizing uh, design Mm. that you have to get it out there and allow allow the debate to happen. Yeah. Um, whereas if you get her out there and it's only the Tesla fans, like the, you can't allow the Tesla fans to start infighting amongst each other. They all have to kind of come together in defense yeah. of Elon. <laughs> um, True. Yeah. And, but so, so what do you think overall of the, the truck? The truck, it, I kind of had the same reaction as everyone else. Like when it rolled onto stage, I was like, oh my gosh, like what the hell, like what is this thing? This thing looks like... <laughs> I mean, I think really the main the main thing I didn't like about the design is that the roof comes to a point, very obviously very angular. But yeah. I think that's the first thing that stood out to me. Like, if I started, if I, I like, I took it into Photoshop and I started like playing around with the design a little bit, and I curved the roof a little bit more. I was like, okay, that's, that actually doesn't look too jarring. I think it's just the fact that the middle, like the roof, just comes to a point that makes yeah. it look so odd. Like, it's just the very angular nature of it. It looks like it's from, you know, 20 years from the future, but it also looks like it's from some shitty sci-fi movie in the 80s or something like that. Yeah. (laughs) My favorite thing is that people say, oh, it's just, it's not using enough polygons. It hasn't rendered fully yet. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, when you you played games in like 2010 and like a car would pop up on the horizon and it would look like that (laughs) and then it would get closer and closer and sort of render more. Yeah, no, that's exactly that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> what do you guys yeah. think on the truck? I've I've kind of come around to it a little bit. Like it's yeah. still, I don't think I'd buy one. <laughs> I, think I wouldn't buy, want say, to get a, a hit by three. one. <laughs> no, I wouldn't want to get hit by one. That's, that's apparently the... though. Actually, there's there was talk I was reading somewhere that they may have some issues getting it into the European Union because the European Union has some pretty strict regulations on mm. pedestrian safety and oh, it's a bit right. of an issue having like sharp edges on yeah. your truck Jeez. Um, and so they may have to do something there to get it into the mm. european union um, yeah but overall like i think it's it's what it is um yeah like there's oh, exactly. not going to be a huge amount of people buying it i don't um, know i think this for the same price as the model three i don't know it's like the Model Three compared to it, like you get a lot more functionality, I think, out of the the Cybertruck than That's the true. Model Three. Sure, yeah, yeah. sure. There's there's a there's a slight drop in range if you compare the lowest model of the Cybertruck, yeah, and the and the Model Three. But I mean, it's got more seats. It's got like all the charging capability in the back. Yeah. You know, it's um yeah. it's massive. It's a yeah. bloody goddamn yeah, it's tank. It's very big. And I mean, like, when you're purchasing a car for a crash. You want mass. <laughs> you want the most momentum. Yeah. So you get the least deceleration. Yeah. So this yeah, is, I don't this know. is their would... plan. This is their master plan. Is they're going to release full self driving on that first because it's not mm. going to matter if it crashes into anything. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. it, it could crash into a building, the building will fall over. Business strategy. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I would, I personally, I would consider, I would consider buying it. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think for a truck, it's relatively cheap, like starting out 40 grand. Mm. Um, even Aussie, that's like 60 grand Australian. So, I mean, yeah. it's super, super competitive and it looks like a beast. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's very cool. To... I just think it's so big. 
like the logistics of parking that in people's garages and uh like even just driving around on sort of tighter city streets is going to be difficult in that just just get snow plow thing at the front and then you can push everything (laughs) out of the road (laughs) coming through (laughs) that's really interesting Uh, i am one note here you should get in touch, Matt, with a guy, another YouTuber, Tesla in the Gong. I know he put a deposit down. On, oh, really? Um, I didn't know yeah. there was there was a guy. Yeah, right. You look look it up on on YouTube. There's um, yeah. a couple of Aussies that um, do Tesla YouTube channels. Tesla in the Gong, and that guy there. I've never met him, um, but I know that he put a deposit down on the Cybertruck. So. I feel like there could be a little bit of networking going on. You have to go and drive this cyber yeah. truck eventually. Yeah. But personally, for me, I've I've just got yeah, I've got no need for a, a truck. Um, you know, a Ute. I, it just doesn't. This functionality doesn't help me in any way. Yeah, yeah. Um, it'd be more functional for me to have something small like a Model Three, like the ATV. Um, yeah. Well, I ride a motorbike already, so maybe I'll just get the ATV. Yeah, that <laughs> ATV cool. is going to be insane. Yeah, I mean, be I'm sure cool. they've made a motorbike as well. Like you can imagine in with a bunch of geeks oh, with that I amount so. of capacity. They've definitely made so. one just to has he ride brought, around. Has he a, talked about a motorbike? Because I think he said something about safety or something to do with a motorbike. Yeah. That he wasn't going to be making one because of the safety I, I aspect think I, I think I've read that too. I think he had some uh, accident on a motorbike when he was a kid yeah. or something. And so he said that he doesn't ever want to make a motorbike, something to do yeah. with safety. But um, There's an Aussie like, company that's made one. one. Sorry? There's an Aussie company that's made one. Um, yeah, they're based like just near here. I forget what right. they're called now. Yeah, there's um, a couple popping up which are really interesting. Yeah, they're just so, at the moment yeah. they just the ones that I see anyway are just so expensive. Just so yeah. expensive. Yeah, yeah they're yeah, very but, um, expensive. So I've got to um, ask yeah. you, Brandon. Um, yeah, go. With all this chat about Tesla, do you own any of the stock? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a Tesla shareholder. This I was going to say, because- it seems like the perfect the perfect stock. Yeah, um for you. it's like definitely it, it's yeah. it's especially with the cult following that it has you know yeah. going for it as well uh, i yeah i love the company yeah i am a i am a tesla shareholder although for a lot of the uh kind of the things that you look at for like um just financial data they they don't actually have like the best balance sheet in the world so i kind of Tesla's kind of my speculative kind of exception to my rules so i kind of go in with that mentality that uh, I kind of hold the stock because it's a it's led by a, a you know a, a great engineer. I definitely great I definitely mind. think it's getting stronger though. Oh for and sure. The thing sure. is too, even if they do, even if they were to get into some financial trouble or something, mm. I don't think they're going to have any issues raising money. More money, yeah. No, That's, they can go they can go to the market and raise you know a few billion, no worries. Yeah. That's the only thing that plays on my mind a little bit is just the fact that. All, all things considered, their cars are still quite expensive. And, of course, if you were to hit some sort of really bad economic conditions, like you would see luxury car sales go through the floor. Yeah. So, would yeah. If, if that happened, if Tesla, all of a sudden, they go from having this amazing exponential um, sales uh, or units delivered or whatever, this amazing growth, if that backs off, and they've already got, a, I think, an annual interest expense of like $800 million. Yeah. Um, um, like they did raise that capital to push them up from two billion in cash in the bank to up to five. I think they're up to five point three now, which obviously yeah. makes you stress a lot less. 
But that's always the thing that kind of plays on my mind. That's why I deem it to be a little bit more speculative is if, the, if shit hits the fan, like how, how bad does this get? I'm not yeah. quite sure. I don't know. I started to think about that. Like, is, is that somewhat then trying to like time the market? Like it is. Yeah. I feel like, right. I feel like then, I don't know, that'd be applicable to other businesses as well. It's like, exactly well, right. Do I get yeah. into such and such because, you know, yeah. shit may hit the fan. It's not looking like it currently, but, you know, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't I don't try to time the market. Like, you obviously play out a worst case scenario and a best case scenario yeah, and everything course. in between. Yeah, yeah, but, of yeah. course. Um, but yeah, if, I think that even if we saw that worst case scenario, they'd probably still make it out all right because I think you're, you're exactly right. They'd have no no worries getting money from, from other investors. Yeah, I think Elon's very good at getting money. Um, I mean, yeah. in the in 2008, they were hours from bankruptcy and he, yeah, he yeah. still managed to pull something out of the hat. Um, the, thing, that- the thing that I like about Tesla and especially SpaceX as well, it, they, did a, they did a poll, right, on a bunch of engineering students. Right. And, and I could speak for this as well. Tesla and SpaceX are the top two country, uh, companies that engineers want to work for. Right. So not only do they have the the capital they're ready for them they also got mm. the choice the choice of talent the first choice yeah so yeah. they're going to have the smartest guys working for them wow, yeah, on top of that as well and i think that's a massive component on it f- that's actually it a really me. good point yeah it's a good yeah. point i think that what they need to really be careful on though is now that like there are real competitors in the market um that they need to really understand what they're doing if they yeah. want to push to the low end of the market and create budget cards if they want to push to the high end of the market but they're going to lose out if they are trying to create the budget car and then also try to compete against porsche on the top end mm, yeah um, I, I mean think- like there was a a podcast out last week because obviously people have started to get their hands on the Taycan. It was one of um joe rogan's podcasts he had a, a motor journalist on who's driven the Taycan. And right. he had some really, really interesting points about it uh, in that, like, Porsche obviously has a very rich history in constructing race cars. Um, and so what he said is that there's two components to the EV market now on that high end when you're talking about these performance vehicles is that you've got the the electric drivetrain part. So how good is the battery? Mm. How good is the the motors? And those sorts of things. Then there's also the the rest of the car, which Porsche are some of the best in the world at doing. Um, so one of the things he said was that they know how to dissipate heat very quickly, uh, because that's what like when you're racing at like Le Mans 24 hours, uh, you've got you've got to be able to manage that heat very well. Yeah. Um, and so they've built a very sort of advanced heat dissipation system within the Taycan so they can cool the components down and keep the performance of the battery up. And so he said, like, he's driven, obviously, Teslas before. And you get those numbers, like those face-melting acceleration numbers. But he said you can basically do, like, four or five launches and get that performance out of it. And then it starts to, like, drop off, which is what you expect with a battery. Whereas with the Taycan you can do it almost until the battery's dead. Um, yeah. I did see and, with, uh, Brandon, you put up a post on Instagram just recently. Yeah, I saw that yeah. like today, wasn't it? When was it? Oh, yes. I yeah, I did put story. that up today. Yeah. That's there. one thing that caught my attention. Yeah. 
their range is uh, a bit lower. That's yeah. it's very disappointing. Yeah, it's it's not it's not crazy bad. Like it's two hundred miles, wasn't it? Two hundred miles. Yeah, yeah, two hundred miles. miles. Real real world. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, three hundred sixty kilometers. You know, it's not sorry, three hundred twenty kilometers. That's not too bad around nah. for like city driving and stuff. But still, yeah. it still doesn't compete with um and that's, a Tesla. I think that that's where Tesla starts to have their advantage is that they seem to be able to produce these cars and beat everyone else on range. Um, well, and even, what's the roadster like, got? So like, the roadster... Like oh, the 500 next, the next miles genera- or something? Yeah, yeah, like 1,000 kilometers. 600 miles? Yeah, it's yeah, something ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think I think that's their big advantage is their, their battery packs and their electric drivetrains, how... I think that really their advantage is the fact they've been doing this for a while already. So they've yeah. they, they've got already they they're still a long way away from being really mature obviously, but they've got a lot of that infrastructure down already set. They've done so much R&D work over the last 10 years or so. They know they've got the best or the most efficient batteries. They know that they've got the most efficient electric drivetrains. And yeah, for for them that, that it just gives them oh, I'm sorry. Did I lose you guys just then? No, no. no we're good. Oh, no, sorry. Sorry, I thought I lost you. I just started... My phone started beeping. No, you're uh, good. Right. You're good. Um, what was I saying? I've lost my train of thought now. Oh, that's right. And the thing the thing about Tesla being... Having done this for so long now is that they've worked their business model to a place where they make electric cars profitably. And that is still something that while all these other auto manufacturers are so much bigger than Tesla or make so many more cars per year, is that when it comes to the electric vehicle side of things, there's very few of them um, that actually make a profit. In most instances, they're selling these electric vehicles and taking a hit with every Mm. single unit that they sell. So, yeah, yeah, I I guess there's, I mean, as we go towards full EV saturation, that's going mm. to be an issue for those other automakers, but they've got time, obviously, to figure those things True. out. True. And yeah. until then, like if they're taking a loss, it doesn't matter all that much. Like they're still going to be in mm. the market. Yeah, um, that's I think true. that my and I read a book uh, recently on Tesla, and it was written by a uh, an auto journalist. He's been doing auto journalism for uh, like twenty years. And he said he had, he basically, like, when you read the book, he is very bearish on Tesla. He doesn't think Tesla's quite got the right business model. And so that's where you've got to be, you've got to have that understanding that he's not going to present a fully fair case. Uh, Hmm. But his argument was that, he basically had two parts to his argument. One, he said that Tesla is trying to spread itself too thin in that it's trying to compete at the top end and it's also trying to compete at the bottom end. Um, And you don't see that in the auto market for very good reason. Um, And then You can already see that. So I was just going to say, you can already start to see that as well with Elon talking about the scarcity of their battery cells. Mm. They're spreading themselves a little bit too thin. Like they've had to starve their energy half of their business. Elon keeps saying that Tesla energy is going to be a beast one day. It's going to be as much, you know, it's going to generate as much revenue as auto. But they've got no battery cells for it. They're putting them into the car. Sorry, that's what yeah. I was just going to make that point. <laughs> yeah, no, on that point though, Jason, I like, yeah, I think even though they are trying to target that that upper market and the up the bottom market as well, you've still got even the lower end cars like the Model Three still have that premium 
feel to them that premium yeah. brand so even yeah. though it's technically like lower end um it still has that premium sort of feel to it yeah and this is exactly what he was saying is that they're trying to make a very cheap car but it's still got a premium brand on it and mm. so he said that they're perhaps being a little bit wasteful and trying to come out i mean they didn't end up coming out with the very base model model three uh and he said they're maybe being wasteful with their resources trying to do that when mm -hmm. they're a luxury brand. Just embrace that you're a luxury brand and make those cars. Um, and so there was that. And then the other thing he said was that the full self-driving may be a tactical error on their part because um, obviously self-driving is going to become a large, a large thing in the future. I don't think it's quite going to happen next year, but... Um, he said that th their plan, at least what they're saying, is that they're going to turn all the, the Teslas that they're selling into these robo-taxis. Mm. When you think about it, it's like uh, they're making these luxury cars, but then trying to make them do another job, whereas you could create a very efficient sort of like pod thing that can drive itself that you can make very cheaply and use those as robo-taxis. Where, mm. where like another company wants the technologies out there and while they're going to have an advantage, it becomes significantly easier for other companies to build self-driving cars after that. Mm. Um, and the regulatory hurdles that they're going to have to get over around the world will give those companies time to, to build theirs. And so mm. if like an Uber or like it probably won't be Uber, but an Uber-like company comes to the market with like some sort of pod robo taxi then why would you spend seventy thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars on a luxury tesla that you're gonna let other people ride in when you could buy like a pod for ten thousand dollars yeah mm. that makes sense yeah i think um, it comes back to the economics of the situation as well yeah if if that if that pod beats the tesla on the range versus the costs and that then you're right then that would probably take the market Whereas if Tesla stays ahead in the range that these robo taxis can um, can go, and the cost, if they can keep the cost down, but yeah, you're right. If the cost is out of whack, then that would yeah. work. And but I guess like the other side of that is that it's something that the bears are obviously clinging on to is that all oh, the self driving will never work and all the stuff. But it may actually work out in Tesla's favor if they just have time. Um, to sort of cement their business before full self-driving really comes in to actually being used because, like, it's not going to happen next year, um, mm. like Elon's saying. Um, you just look at how slowly regulatory things move. It's just, like, it's not... It's, we've got a fair way to go before we get there. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, but, you can look at, look at anything else in politics and it takes bloody forever yeah, to... Yeah, and this is sort of... <laughs> It's one of the really big issues that are going to hit politicians going forward is how to regulate self-driving. And so there's at least sort of like three or four years before, com before countries start to adopt it and probably 10 or 15 years before all countries have that in place. Uh, but it may work out in Tesla's favor because it allows them to take the take the foot off the gas on the full self-driving and focus on making their cars really good so that they have an 
extra level of uh, selling points above like a pod that comes out or maybe they mm -hmm. could make a pod um, yeah, yeah i think with tesla really like the premium price um for me it's got a lot to do with like the safety of it so yeah it's a good factor, i don't know it's yeah. kind of like if you had a family say would you spend the extra you know 30 percent odd or whatever like if you bought a, a model 3 say and it was i don't know 70 grand australian 80 grand australian whatever it is um you're buying the safest car on the market like in yeah, terms true. of in terms of just looking at it from an insurance perspective i feel like it's relatively good insurance on the road buying the safest car on the market yeah before even you know you take into account like the maintenance costs and stuff yeah. that bring down that relative pricing but well then you just got to buy a cyber truck because no one's going to touch you in a cyber truck <laughs> unless they yeah. have a metal ball to throw at your window then then you're screwed yeah exactly right <laughs> look out <laughs> look out for those flying steel balls far out <laughs> do you think people are going to buy the cyber truck and do like you know when a new iphone comes out people do drop tests with the with the yeah. iphone like because like an iphone's like a thousand bucks for these people they're going to make that back on <laughs> Like the first few hours that their video goes up. Yeah. Like, yeah. Are people going to buy a Cybertruck and start trying to trash it? I could definitely see a video coming out and people saying, I drove my Cybertruck through a wall. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. someone's going to. This is do what it. happened. Graham Stephan will do come it. Up, someone will come up with the most clickbaity title and they will destroy their Cybertruck and it'll cost them $39,000 and they'll make a hundred grand on all the ad yeah. revenue. Someone's yeah. gonna do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll be quite funny when, when that happens. Um, yeah. Did you see that uh, Joe Rogan podcast? It was a few months ago now, the guy who built, like rebuilt a Tesla. Oh no. Um, oh, you should go listen to that episode. I'll send you yeah. which one it is after. I'll have yeah, to have sure. a look through. Yeah. But it's this guy, he basically went and I think he got two or three Teslas in the end that okay. had been wrecked and he rebuilt them so so like he now has a i think it's a model s he now has a tesla but it's kind of a hybrid of three different ones because he had to take different parts from different yeah different teslas and he he managed to build it and it works now and he's opened a tesla sort of repair shop because right. he's now got the expertise yeah it's quite cool uh, but Tesla, Tesla was trying to stonewall him on doing that. They don't want him yeah. to. I could, I could imagine Tesla being quite strict on that sort of stuff, especially yeah. when you start getting, for instance, if you've got an autopilot system and then you start getting people that are replacing this and putting that over here and changing the battery pack. And yeah. I don't know. I feel like that Tesla might step in and say, hey, actually, we really need our cars to stay as one piece just to make sure that the safety <laughs> yeah. systems work properly. <laughs> yeah, well, that was one of the things is he said that it's on an older firmware. He can't right, get firmware okay. updates, obviously, because yeah. what happens is if you wreck your Tesla and it gets written off, then... Uh, that gets basically sent to Tesla's system and they turn turn it off uh, oh, okay. for, for all the updates and stuff. Yeah. So he yeah. can't, it's like if you uh, like buy an old version of software, like you can't get upgrades past a certain point or whatever. Yeah. Um, so he can't get upgrades on it. And then he had a battle to try and get a key for it because oh, okay. um, like the key was lost. It was a wrecked car. Yeah. Um, and he had a battle. He ended up having to like sort of do a hack because Tesla wouldn't basically give him a key to work with his car because right. they obviously don't want that's a that's a PR nightmare for them. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. 
And he made like a whole video series about it. So you can watch like, I think it's a couple of hours of him literally building a Tesla. It's really, really awesome. I have to go have a look. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be a bit I'll... nervous switching the autopilot on though. Yeah. I, I don't <laughs> think he can get it, but yeah, that would be yeah. a, a nerve wracking thing. What yeah, do you, you think probably... of um, autopilot in general? Do you think you would be comfortable yeah. with it or? Oh, I think like everyone, I think the first time or even the first 50 times you did it, you would be, you would be quite nervous and you would be ho- like really watching closely as to what the car did. From, in a, fact, what, from sorry, a guy we, that rides around on a motorbike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly right. um, it was actually interesting. I, I saw a Model 3 on the road the other day. And, yeah. Um, well, firstly, I could tell it had autopilot on because I drove past and the guy was on the phone and not holding the steering wheel, which is bad. <laughs> but awesome. once, once I realized, yeah, once I realized that the autopilot was on, I dropped back and just sat behind him for a while and the car stay, you know how like when you're driving behind someone, they kind of sway left, they kind of sway right. You kind of watch them and sometimes they hit the center line. You're like, Oh, sh-, you know, watch it, watch it, buddy. This car stayed so dead center in the lane, it was ridiculous. Even through all the corners, it stayed exactly in the center. That's awesome. I thought that was phenomenal, yeah. Um, But one thing that was interesting, actually, I I think that over time, I would definitely be able to trust autopilot software. Um, I think even the statistics that they're coming out with with the crash data um, is pretty compelling that it's already very, very safe. Uh, but yeah, I think it would take a little bit of adjusting. Um, yeah. first well, up. I think what- like the things with the, the crash data is mm. that obviously it's way safer to uh, drive, like drive on autopilot than it is to drive yourself. Uh, but like based, like it's way safer to fly anywhere because yeah. just statistically less people die in plane crashes than on the road. And people True, still yeah. sort of feel uncomfortable about flying. We talked mm. about this before as well. Like it's, even though it is currently as it is now safer than driving yourself, yeah. it's it's more to do with um, people dying that shouldn't be dying in the first place. Like yeah. you're dying because of something that's not your fault. Whereas when you crash your car, Obviously, there's some level of human error in there. Yeah. But when it's the other way around, it's viewed as being different. So, it's like indiscriminate death. Like, it's not... It doesn't matter who's driving the car or who's sitting in the car. Yeah. You don't really have, you know... So, yeah. it's, it's like kind those, of like more out of your control. Of, yeah. Like there were a couple of instances where it rents under like a semi-trailer. Yeah. Um, it and it's like... semi, yeah. Yeah, like a, a person would never die in that situation they would see it and they would slow down um and even though when you look at the statistics it's still way way safer to yeah like it's just like those things those instances yeah like they're not going to feel comfortable until it basically gets down to zero um like because people are still going to just feel uncomfortable about maybe being killed by their car yeah i mean statistics account for the average of all drivers like if you think you're a better than average driver well then obviously you're not going to be at the same statistic as everyone else like if you're driving safer so there's there's a funny statistic um which actually speaks to the the point we're making here is that more like 70 percent of people think they're better than average (laughs) i was gonna say i was gonna say but like little things like uh i don't know leaving enough uh, enough distance between you and the the vehicle in front yeah um 
Yeah. yeah. Well, Still yeah, there are, like there are those people who are better than average drivers. And like, imagine if you've got like a race car driver, like say Lewis Hamilton goes and gets killed in a crash where his car's driving itself. It's like, well, that guy would never crash his car. Yeah. You know, unless he's doing exactly. something dumb. But if it's yeah, just like yeah. a regular thing and it just like crashes and he dies, well then that's a terrible news story for Tesla. Um but like on on it like it's just it's just uncomfortable with new technology. Like when yeah. I told the story before that when people when elevators first sort of got computers in them and so they could go up and down uh, by themselves before that there was effectively like a lever inside and there would be someone standing <laughs> there and you say oh yeah i'm going to floor three please and then they'd like drive you up to floor three <laughs> and like get you out and then uh, when they had push buttons that just took you to the floor mm. what they couldn't like people wouldn't go in them because they were scared so they would still have someone standing in there and the person would just press the button for you yeah and now <laughs> we walk into an elevator no worries yeah. yeah. So maybe yeah. it's just a matter of time. And I also think like it's fair enough that people are still a little bit hesitant of autopilot because it's not a com- it's not a finished technology yet. Like Yeah. I think it's fair like Tesla obviously say when you buy one that hey, this is not full self-driving yet. You need to keep your hands on the steering wheel, you need to be alert to what's around you. But I think the good thing is is that all of these Teslas are being sold are collecting continuously collecting all that data, which only means it gets better over time. Yeah. So do I you think, think that, even that if, yeah um, go, you go i don't know if it's a, a thing on the Teslas, but do you think it would be better for them to implement like the autopilot in a way that you still have to drive the car it's just not going to let you crash yeah um, well like, doesn't it already are, have that are, running now yeah i think there are active safety features that you can't turn off yeah, but like obviously now I think they've got the whole thing where you've got to have your hands on the steering wheel. Yeah. But like people have found if they like hang something off it, it will. Yeah, think you're... true, they do, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> but like if there was something that like you had to, it was able to monitor if you're making inputs. Like if yeah. you're like sort of changing the. Because this is what um, modern planes have, they have a fly by wire system. Um, and so what happens is you the computer is effectively flying the plane, um, but you're telling it what to do. Um, So like putting it into a car perspective, say if you're on the freeway and you want to change lanes, you can tell it to change lanes. But if there's like someone in your blind spot or something, it just won't let you do it. But like you're still guiding the car around. Maybe that would be a better way to implement it rather than having like this weird in-between thing where you can kind of hack it and have it drive itself. Yeah. Um, I think that would be, at least people would feel more more comfortable. Maybe Actually, no, maybe they feel less comfortable because now they're, they're saying, well, I'm driving, but I'm not driving. And Yeah. I, I think for people would find comfort in the fact that, yes, that while they're driving, it's still, if things are going really bad, it'll help you out kind of thing <laughs> yeah like there's those really cool videos where something happens in a road and you just see the tesla like jam on the brakes and swerve around the accident or, or mm. something like that those Some are really cool 
I've seen the extremes of both of those. I've seen the amazing ones where it predicts a crash coming from a mile away. And mm. I've seen the ones where it just drives through a, pol- a bollard. It's like, oh my yeah. gosh. <laughs> yeah. It's like okay. absolute two extremes. And of course, the bulls cling to one video and the bears cling to another. <laughs> yeah. It, it's yeah. Not, a, not a great uh, thing. They, they really just need to get to a point where there's n- no chance of people seeing videos like that. Um, or someone else comes out with a worse self-driving thing and oh, the other gosh. one gets all the attention. Yeah. <laughs> no, we, we don't want to bet the on heat that, off Tesla. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I just, I did notice that you had in the doc here that you, uh, Disney Plus and like the sort of Disney Netflix streaming wars thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, what's, your, what's your feel on that? Because I know you have Disney Plus, don't you? Sorry? You've got Disney Plus. Yes, yes. Yeah, so what what do you think of it? I think it's interesting. I thought when I logged on to Disney Plus that I was just going to have so much content, I was just going to watch it, watch it, watch it, and I'd never run out. I think that the interesting thing that getting Disney Plus has highlighted to me is that a streaming service really, for, for me anyway, comes down to what is new and coming out on the streaming service. Because, I mean, for me, I just watch... I've really just been watching what's been coming out more recently. Like I've been watching the Disney Imagineering story. I've been watching the Mandalorian because I'm a big Star Wars fan. Um, I watched a couple of episodes of that Jeff Goldblum show. Um, but yeah, it's it's still, you can tell that like Netflix is, is pushing a lot of their new content. Amazon, a lot of new content. Disney is kind of like, oh, we're getting there with the new content. But while you wait, have like the biggest nostalgia trip you've ever had kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah overall, I think like- you're right. I think there was a big debate going on, obviously in the last six months or so, where mm. people have said, is Disney Plus going to kill Netflix? I think yeah. that what's going to happen is there's going to be some people who get Disney Plus and some people who don't, Yeah. but yeah. very few people are going to cancel their Netflix subscription. Yeah, I'd probably uh, agree with that too. I think that Disney will definitely... I think that the way that Disney have structured their launch of Disney Plus makes it clear that they're they're no longer treating Netflix as a friend, definitely as a foe. Um, for instance, they're deliberately undercutting them. Um, they've already said that Disney Plus won't make money until like 2024, 2025. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, they could have, if they wanted to impress investors, they could have charged more for it and have just bumped that profitability date back a little bit but they decided not to. They decided very specifically to undercut Netflix um, and basically as much as they can. And they've had, um, there's no restrictions on the amount of screens that you can use as well, whereas obviously there is with Netflix. So I think they're definitely finding those things that Netflix offers and trying to kind of go one up on Netflix. So I think for Disney's tactic is to really try and hurt Netflix and grab as many... Uh, kind of almost try and crush them. And I think if you look at Netflix's financials, there probably is a potential that Disney could do it because I think the advantage of Disney is what we were talking about before, the fact that they're a massively diversified global entertainment company with revenue streams in four key areas, whereas Netflix, they've just got the one. Like, it's just their streaming service. Yeah. And even at the moment, what you're seeing with Netflix is they openly acknowledge in their reports that they need their their primary focus is to make more original content so that they can rival the the other companies like Disney that have all of that original IP content that's that stood the test of you know decades and decades and decades 
And they've also they've also shown that the way that they're going to fund that is basically just take on more and more and more and more debt. Um, I think not three or four years ago they had two billion dollars in debt at Netflix, and now they've got more than twelve billion. So yeah, um, I think that it's interesting to look at the the battle between the two. But I think it's very clear that Disney's really trying to put the hammer down and try and hurt yeah. Netflix. What interests me most, what what interests me most, and I've had this discussion with my girlfriend several times because she's like really into film and she's studying it at uni and there, there's a big sort of paradigm shift happening in TV and film at the moment where they're becoming closer and closer together. Uh, so back in the day you had your movie, your feature film, which was 90 to 120 minutes that would release in cinemas and then would sort of not be available for a while and then they would come out on DVD or whatever. And then you had your TV shows, which ran for six months, once a week. So there were 24 episodes um, and you would have kind of those filler episodes, you know, when you watch those shows. Yeah. It's like the episodes which are really like kind of nothing burgers. Yeah. And then... Um, Starts and like, finishes in the same place. Yeah. And you were just yeah. like, just to fluff out the season. Yeah. Um, and they were 42 minutes long. And so, <laughs> like, so you've got that, that's those two power, like, sort of types of media. And then now what we're seeing is that you've got the feature films uh, sometimes feeling a little bit short because yeah. you can't dig into things too much. But then yeah, you don't get that storytelling. Yeah. But then TV has had an, a great uh, plus from the streaming services where they don't have to fill 24 episodes anymore. You can have an eight-episode season of something or a 12-episode season or whatever you need to make, and you can really tell a story properly. And so I think that what we're going to see is uh, a move towards sort of these mini-series like The Mandalorian – um, and like, uh, Netflix has some awesome content like that, which I think mm. is going to be a leg up for them. Uh, yeah. like we've seen previously, they had house of cards was obviously their first one. Um, now they've got the crown, which is huge. Um, mm. uh, mind hunter. They've, they've really nailed that short, not mini series, but short season, like hour long episode form of television, which I think can count really well in their favor. Whereas obviously Disney is very entrenched in Hollywood yeah. and they're going to make very traditional content for a while still. Yeah. I find it interesting. I definitely think that this sort of, these sort of forms of media are definitely changing because it does make sense that TV should probably be the focus of a lot of these different, you know, entertainment companies, these media companies, because, you know, you, you do get to, you get that storytelling advantage where you've got several hours over several weeks where you can unfold an in-depth storyline. Whereas in the theater, you've only got a two, two hours, 20 minutes or whatever. Yeah. Um, but also you, you've got the advantage of, you know, people don't have to get up and go anywhere. I mean, you could just you just watch it from your lounge room. You watch it right before you go into bed. You shut your laptop, you turn off the TV and you just go to sleep. So, yeah, <laughs> like you can watch it in your pajamas, like you 
going to the movies is just that extra step. Like it's nice to go and experience the big screen and the big surround sound and all that. But you're right for, for most consumers in general, it seems as though TV, there will be probably like that big shift. We're, we're already seeing it, the big shift towards TV, um, which is, yeah, I find it really fascinating. I, I find it interesting to watch. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't been to the cinema in so long. Mm. Um, like I used to, I to. used to love it. Um, but like, what I've noticed is that cinemas are starting to turn towards that really luxurious, making it an experience of going experience, to the yeah. cinema. Uh, so like I, I did actually go to the cinema uh, a couple of months ago. Like me and my yep. girlfriend went to see Downton Abbey. But we went like all out and mm. we, we went to the most fancy cinema we could find. They had these big, nice leather reclining seats. They had wait staff that would bring you hot food. Um, nice. <laughs> and yeah, we went all out for it because like you just don't need to go to a crappy cinema with like popcorn all over the floor anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you you're sort of happy with how Disney Plus is going, like from from a consumer yeah. perspective. Like, are you oh, enjoying kid, it yeah. or? Yeah, I'm enjoying it. To be honest, for me personally, I'm really just in it for Star Wars because I'm just a big Star Wars fan. Uh, but I'll be interested to see. Like, I've, I've been watching the Imagineering story, which is giving me more of a background into the theme park side of Disney's business, the history there. And I found that really, really interesting. Um, even from just like an understanding of the business point of view of Disney, some so many nuggets and just learning about how Walt Disney built the place and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I'm generally happy with it from a consumer standpoint. Um, yeah. The the first week or so was a bit uh, was a bit interesting. Uh, yeah, they like they it, seemed to have operational problems or account problems, didn't they? Yeah, like it. We had issues here. We were trying to watch certain movies wouldn't load. Oh. Okay. Um, and then like sometimes it would just sort of stop in the middle of a thing and start to buffer. And like, what is this 2010 oh. on YouTube? Yeah. What's going on? <laughs> but yeah, they had some issues, but again, I think they had the capacity to not have those issues, but they mm. wanted to say that servers crashed on the first day of Disney plus. Yeah. Like it's a news story, right? And yeah. then so everyone's like, Oh my God, Disney plus is so, so popular. They actually crashed it. Um, but there were some issues. I think that this is where Netflix, again, they've actually written several blogs on their on their websites about how they approach user experience. And they, they have that dialed in. Um, whereas, like, there's a few things on Disney+, Plus which I just feel are odd when, I, when I'm scrolling through it. Like, why did they make that decision? Um, yeah. Like, one of them is I've got it on my TV. And you know how they, they lay it out in sort of the grid. And so you have the lines that scroll side to side and you can go between the lines. On Netflix, when you go from one line to the next, it jumps back to the start of the line. So you can scroll through from the beginning. It doesn't right. do that on Disney Plus for some reason. It just goes oh, to the okay. square directly below where you currently are. Right. Little things yeah. like that, I think, take away from the browsing experience on Disney Plus. Um, and then I think the content for, for me, like I'm not a huge star Wars fan or a Marvel fan. So that's one side I can't really comment on, uh, too much. I, there's not a lot of content. I really like Amazon primes content. Are they just sort of down my alley, the stuff they've got on there? Yeah. Um, and then although the, um, SpaceX documentary was really cool. 
Yeah, I watched that too. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. Like, I saw it on there. I was like, yeah. I got some good uh, documentaries on there. Yeah, the National yeah. Geographic is what I signed up for. Yeah, it's a good buy by Disney off of um, Fox. Yeah. Yeah. So was there anything else you, you were interested in uh, chatting about before we finish up? Um, I think we've covered heaps of topics today. It's, it's actually been really good chatting to you guys. Yeah, yeah it's been a good episode. Yeah. yeah. We enjoyed just sort of having a more unstructured, like being able to... Yeah, just keep it free-flowing. No, yeah, it's, just it's good. have a it chat. Because it just feels more like a chat. Exactly right. You're just having a chat. You're not actually like producing a radio show or something yeah like we did feel like a radio show (laughs) yeah (laughs) we did have to like at the beginning of the podcast we tried to sort of pick a topic each episode and research it like much like you guys do uh but i think we we tried to branch out a little bit too far into things we weren't as comfortable with and so yeah we'd have to do a lot of research and it became you know caused to become more one-sided and yeah and what we ended up doing uh, was we would sit there and chat before we started recording the episode and we'd chat for an hour. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> and then we were like, actually, the stuff we're chatting about before we start recording is much better yeah. than the episode. So um, <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys are going well on your podcast, eh? Yeah, yeah, we're doing all right. We've been doing it for over a year now. And, um, yeah. I, th- I don't know. What what episode uh, are you up? You guys up to? This is episode 44. 44, okay. So uh, I think we're in the... F- I think you 50s, did 58 today eight yeah something like that yeah 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 um but yeah so far so good yeah um we just follow the same kind of approach we just kind of pick a general topic and of course we do the news as well so we just kind of just w- whatever takes our fancy we just talk about it and kind of just listen to feedback we always kind of like it as a bit of an outlet to to uh, for people that follow our channels just to ask questions that we can answer um, yeah to a broader audience as well so yeah we do that definitely. as well I do like listen sort of every week. Um, mm. Like you're nice and consistent, which is I think the most important thing with the podcast is yes. like consistency <laughs> every yeah. week because yeah. it works itself into people's routines. It does. Um, yeah, you're right. And I've had podcasts like I've I've listened to podcasts for like ten years now, and they do just fit into your routine. They come out the same day every week. Um, and I had a podcast which I've listened to since like effectively it was one of the first podcasts I found. And they did a weekly schedule. It was on uh, Monday mornings every week. They had an episode out. And then they went to twice monthly episodes every two weeks. And it suddenly just fell out of my schedule. And I have to remember to go and look for episodes of it. Yeah. But yeah. I think I find the same on YouTube. It's all about the consistency. As soon as you start dropping your consistency, people kind of forget that they were watching you regularly. (laughs) Yeah. That, yeah. that is one thing I noticed. Um, I know Hamish has scaled back on YouTube a little bit since he's been focusing yeah, he on other things. And yeah. that's like one thing like, I was watching his episode, like videos, sorry. Like, Cause I think yeah. he was every like Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday at like 8am, yeah. like on yep. the dot for mm. quite a while. He was very consistent with it. And yep. so I would find myself, cause I get in the office at like 730 and yeah. I'll sort of do a few things like read read a few news articles and stuff. And I'll see, oh, it's eight o'clock. Let's go see what Hamish has posted. Um, yeah. But like since he's been like obviously scaled back, not, not saying mm. inconsistent is the wrong word, but since he's scaled back, it's kind of become one of those things where I don't watch episodes like his videos when they get released. Yeah, you'll miss one or two. Yeah. 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 That's it. It is all about consistency. Yeah. Yeah. What are your plans for YouTube and stuff? I know you're working on some stuff in the background on... 
Yeah, working um, on some stuff in the background, which will be uh, up and running fairly soon. Um, but I've I'm just scaling. I'm actually scaling back my physiotherapy at the moment because I want to try and give YouTube a really red hot crack in in 2020 and and see where it can take me. Yeah. Um, from there and and um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to having more time actually because that's the one thing that I've found with my content is that um, I can make I can make decent episodes but i really would like that extra time in a week to really go that next layer kind of really get Mm. that next layer deep yeah Um, just to give just to give more value um uh, like for instance if if i'm in a rush i hate for a video to end up being only a quite a surface level kind of this is my take on it all right see ya (laughs) so i'm hoping that in in the next year if i focus a little bit less on the physiotherapy and focus more on the youtube that i can just take the time to go uh, more in depth in each video, which hopefully works out well because hopefully I just provide more value to people, um, and obviously it helps me out because I get to to learn topics in much more depth. Yeah. So, what's your uh, balance between like your physio job and YouTube at the moment? Like in terms um, of I, days. Days I work um, on Tuesdays. I work at the clinic, um, and that. Apart from that, I'm. For the for next year, I'm just going to do that Tuesday, and okay. I'm going to be on standby. Basically, have you have you had any uh, clients that that come to you and <laughs> chat about investing while yeah. you're? <laughs> yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been really interesting actually. I I have I've been recognised a couple of times in the clinic. Actually, the first time I got recognised, anyone recognised me from YouTube was in the clinic, which was oh, wow. a little bit awkward. I didn't really know how to how to handle it. <laughs> like, all right, um, that's uh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like all right, I, let's talk about investing, but I. I, I do have to fix your knee, <laughs> um, but no, it's, it's, um, yeah, no, it's, it's good. It's good fun. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so have you so ever much, thought yeah. of, um, like taking a run at a career in, in finance, like maybe doing like a CFA or anything like that? Yeah. I, that's the thing. I've really been thinking ab- about, well, okay, if I'm going to do YouTube, like, more or less full time, really make a good hard crack at it. Maybe I should delve in and do some proper study, but um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know where I would start with that. Um, depends I'd on the to... depends on the type of content you want to produce. I guess it's exactly like, do right. you want to do you want to make something more technical, yeah. kind of like the plain bagel, or do you want yeah. to keep it more general and sort of entertainment yeah. based? So yeah, I mean, it kind of goes both ways. Like it just depends on what True. what type I of content. I think when the reason that I would want to do study in this area is to just personally have just a deeper understanding of these topics for myself. So that, yeah. um, for instance, there's still plenty of things, um, that pop up, you know, just even just words that pop up and I'm just like, wait, what the hell? <laughs> like anyone that's done a degree in, you know, uh, finance or economics or whatever, I go, Oh, how, how do you not know that? But I'm just like, <laughs> I haven't done it. So I need to go look up what that is. And, so I think I'd probably, I think that a lot of the stuff I feel like you guys talk about on this podcast, the the macro environment, um, that's an area that I don't delve into as much. I'm more just focusing on the individual business. So I'd like to do some sort of study, maybe understanding the macro um, in much more detail, much more depth. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I just study just for my own personal benefit of, of really understanding the these topics in more depth. Yeah. 
Well, I can recommend actually um, the CFA Institute. Um, so yeah. Chartered Financial Analyst. Um, like you don't have to do obviously the whole CFA. That's a really tough course. But they yeah. do have a sort of, I think it's called the Investment Foundations or something. Uh, they have effectively it's an online course. It's completely free and you go through basically readings and then you do quizzes as you go. And then at the end, there's an exam like that you do online. And if you obviously pass it, you get a, a certificate. But I've found like it's been effectively a review for me of my degree. Uh, and I'm coming towards okay. sort of the end of my finance degree. Um, and yeah, effectively it's a review of everything I've learned in there. And so if you did want to, uh, get that understanding, you, that would be, be a really good go. option. Yeah. Cause it's, yeah. it's not, it's, I mean, it's completely free, so you're not paying anything to do it and it's completely yeah. self-paced. Um, and then oh, that's good. it's got a very good technical, it gives you a good technical base to then go and approach other things. Oh, um, thanks for letting me know about it. I have to have a look at it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. So I think that's that's probably all we have to talk about today. Cool. Um, yeah. Thanks oh. for having me on, guys. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for coming on. It was a great chat. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah, it's really yeah. good to, to talk to you guys. Finally. <laughs> Finally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for anyone who uh, somehow hasn't come across Brandon on the internet before, um, you're at do you have a, a URL yet on your YouTube channel? Oh, no. <laughs> no, this is one thing I've never set up. Uh, yeah. I'm just... Yeah, I don't even know. So my, it's like my URL is channel forward slash like Z question mark y, one two <laughs> question mark. Yeah, yeah. but uh, no, nah, just just search um, it Aussie Wealth Creation. Aussie Wealth Creation, <laughs> and you've got the Young Investors Podcast. Yeah, um, as well, which is uh, every every Saturday uh, yeah. morning that comes out. That's it. And yeah, so uh, definitely go and check that out uh, if you haven't heard of Brandon for some weird reason um and yeah so thanks for coming on and uh we'll uh, hopefully get you on again at some point in the future as well yeah for sure uh, maybe after a tesla earnings report we'll yeah oh we i could talk for hours on that that company yeah. so <laughs> yeah so maybe when <laughs> no, the next one comes out what do you know when that is it must be oh, uh, coming no, up I'm... fairly soon yeah i'm not i'm not too sure probably in yeah, like it'll early be here before we know it yeah yeah because they, they run their uh, their quarters on like the calendar dates, don't they? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure they do. Yeah, yeah, it looks like they reported October 23rd, so probably towards the end of Jan, they'll have their next their next one. We shall um, reconvene. They're not, they're not <laughs> doing an odd Apple thing where Apple finishes their oh, quarter on like so the confusing. 23rd of... Uh, My gosh, like just mind. keep it consistent. <laughs> yeah. So it's so yeah, confusing. It's, it's really odd. Uh, but that's just one of the things they do and that's um it produces a bit of a headache when you're modeling it but whatever Uh, i like to be an individual yeah anyway uh thanks for coming on and we'll uh we'll chat soon yeah thanks for having me guys appreciate it